Sun goes down, sun comes up. Days can drown in a plastic cup in this town. In their ever-present pursuit of entertainment, education, and some adjective to be named later, the Homestar Army proudly presents Trek West 5, a conglomerate podcast of science fiction, politics, humor, and pretty much whatever else we want to talk about. Trek West 5 is brought to you in part by RocketWebDesign.com, custom web design at template website prices. Designs by Dee.blogspot.com, your online home for all your digital scrapbooking needs. Need a home along the Wasatch Front? Contact Lisa DeBagere with Kirkham & Friends Real Estate. No one will work harder for your home. And thehomestarmy.com, blogging to the world since 2004. Your hosts for Trek West 5 are Joey and Peter. Good evening and welcome to Podcast 110. I am Peter. And I am Joey. And uh, we're joined this evening by a uh, special guest, intern Aaron. There he is with this patented... Uh, I'm pretty uh, sure he hasn't filed for a patent on that. Oh, his soon-to-be patented, <laughs> patent-pending little uh, wave of the hand. Uh, oh, uh, well, it's not. it hasn't been patented. I just did it there, so I don't think I owe him any royalties no. yet. It's more of a trademark. Trademark. <laughs> Trademark. <laughs> what exactly are you trading under that mark? <laughs> Waves? <laughs> Salutations in general. Uh, well, uh, did everybody have a good week? I didn't care for this week. Oh, okay, that's good. And uh, Aaron? You had a pretty good week. Yeah? yeah? What did you do? Got a $1,500 check. Hey, that's fantastic. Uh, did the uh, did the Obamacare money finally kick in? Is that where this is coming from? Or? No. <laughs> oh, that would be the Mama Care. Ah, ah. <laughs> how do I get in on that action? <laughs> well, uh, nonetheless, I'm pleased that you have uh, money now, and uh, feel free to uh, fritter Pay it for away. My rent. <laughs> oh, <laughs> all right. Yeah, well, I'll do that too. Um. I'm sorry you had a bad week, Joey. I really Thanks. am. Um, I've I've been there before. <laughs> Once or twice. Yeah, and uh, I was kind of there this week as well. I, there, there was a lot. Just busy stuff. Busy, busy stuff. Why was yours bad? I don't remember you telling me that it was so bad during the week. Oh, I just got I got a lot of bad news on the same day. Um, uh, a big element of it was being told that I had 12 vacation days that I'm just going to lose if I don't take them. The problem is, if I take days off, they still call me. They still need work done. There's stuff that has to be done today that I have to do. And, and so it's not really a vacation day. So I just say, you know, I'm going to take them. But as you pointed out earlier today, at least I get to do it from the comfort of my own home. Yeah. Which means, you know, I have my wife and kids bugging me instead of my coworkers bugging me. <laughs> I guess it's a change of pace. So I'll, I'll look at it that way. But uh, it, it well, resulted yeah. in... Me taking every Friday off between now and the end of our company's fiscal year. Yeah, it, you got to think about it. Uh, lock yourself in the bathroom. 
I mean, then you don't even have to wear pants. <laughs> and well, that is an advantage. And I still hate wearing pants. You uh, you get the day off there. Hey, you're uh, you're away from uh, the kids. You're away from the wife. You know, if somebody needs to go to the bathroom, you say, "Go down to the the store." <laughs> <laughs> or say, yeah, "There's a tree out back. Just go use that." Um, and uh, so that happened to you, and then. They passed the debt ceiling thing, and that yeah, angered you so that much. That me a little bit. You wanted the government to default, to default on all of their yeah, loans. I did. Uh, and, yeah, and I found out a, a good friend of mine, his, his wife is divorcing him and trying to take uh, half of the company that he owns in, in the process. That was a little disturbing. And it all happened kind of on the same day, so yeah, it was a little bit rotten. I'm sorry for you. Um, well, I'd love to... Shall we? Shall we tr- continue on, in spite of all all of our yep, challenges? Absolutely. Let us persevere. <laughs> Let us endure, if you will. Yes, enduring freedom. <laughs> uh, sorry, I decided to have a moment of silence. Yeah, no, there I noticed in, it <laughs> in honor. Um, okay, let's uh, let's move on uh, to Facebook Find of the Week. Facebook find of the week. Uh, as much as we they, had several submissions, we, we had some really good ones actually. Uh, it was it was tough, but I'm gonna have to go with the George Lucas strike. <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> I teased Aaron by telling him I was gonna go with the Pat Tillman interview, which would have been a good choice. Yeah, I like. But the Aaron Pat was really interview. pulling for the the George Lucas video. Hilarious. Uh, I, I did. I laughed a couple times at it. So. Yeah. Okay. And uh, who was the person who had submitted that? I, I can't remember if that was Moneybags or Brainy Smurf. I have to go check right now. I don't remember offhand either. I can't believe you wouldn't have something like that ready to go. I mean, after all, you are going to award them something. But not for two days, per your understanding. How do they know? <laughs> how do they... How, what, what, how? That was from... It could have just as easily been decided on you know, Monday Brainy morning. Smurf. Brainy Smurf. Congratulations. Uh, second time winning. Yeah. So he's really charging forward. He's going to get the uh, second award that we've done. Yeah, we're going to have to come up with the third soon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, uh, um, so, some of our more silent listeners could certainly send in, you know, there's 40 people downloading this thing and no one ever emails. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, they, they shouldn't be emailing. They should be Facebook posting. They can uh, certainly Facebook posting. Us, yes. Um, all right. Well, you know what? If, uh, if Krista... If listener Flamingo posts something, I'm going to go ahead and say she'll become the odds-on favorite for this week. I'm saying that just, you know, to get her to try and do something (laughs) on on the Facebook page. Uh, Anyway, congratulations. If you have not received your Facebook uh, Find of the Week award, um, it's Joey's fault, and uh, you should let us know. Yeah, if if you're hearing this and your award is not in your (laughs) inbox, I screwed up again. (laughs) Okay. I noticed that you have a new chair. I said a new chair. I haven't seen two of them in the in the room before. Are you kidding me? No. Did you, you just have the a last, blue one? The the last podcast, this was sitting right was here. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, these chairs I got from uh, from uh, work, and uh, they they were a pair. They were a set. Okay. So that's yeah. You used to have to have the blue one. Okay. Which, uh, you yeah, know, it's just across the room. And that's actually Hiding where... behind the couch. It's actually where the other red, one used red to chair used to be. <laughs> okay. But, uh, it's uh, traded places there. Well, Are you okay? Is this upsetting you at oh, all? It was, it was a little bit strange. The red chair used to be over there by the 
laundry door. It still is. Just so we're clear. It needs to be further over. It's moved. It can't be further over. I, I'm concerned right now. Are you okay? Apparently distances have changed. What a very, very bizarre thing to have brought up. But nonetheless, it has happened. Um, this this is what 40 people sign up for. <laughs> Believe it or not, this is what they're tuning in for. The pointing they can't see and objects they also can't see. Maybe we should take a picture of the red chairs just so uh, you know the people can get a feel for how truly upset that they could possibly make someone. <laughs> Take several pictures of the room. Do like a 3D rendering so no, that they no, can bring it up while they're watching and go, oh, that's where Joey sits. And this is where... <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. Too funny. Um, well, or not funny at all, as the case may be for some of you. Um, let's move on, please. Joey's Culture Corner, <laughs> take us off to something of culture. The, uh, the Culture Corner this week is a series of books called The Bedside Baccalaureate. It's no, you don't hear the term baccalaureate much. Not not enough, huh? Um, and the the concept is that they did a kind of a survey type covering of twenty different topics in each volume. So I think there's two volumes. There may be more than that. And so it talks about like art history, and like they picked a period of art history, the impressionists, in the first volume. And they talk about the internet, and they explain how a web browser works, and how HTML and email work. Wow, they, they jump from art to the internet? They do art, the internet, history, so they had a thing on uh, the rise of Nazi Germany, I think, is what it was mostly about, and the, the events around the Holocaust. Uh, they had Seems one like on... they just lost that argument. <laughs> well, Godwin's Law would dictate so. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of what else. They had a thing on... Oh, what is the uh, Nietzsche on you know his, his philosophy and, and kind of I can't remember what that branch of philosophy is. Is it existentialism? Impressionist? No. <laughs> is, anyway. it the, is it the Baroque period? No. That's just one of the one of the two volumes. So there's actually between the two volumes, there's forty different topics that are covered. They're about I want to say they're like five hundred pages each, and what they do is they they write them as one-page essays, and as you turn in the page, you, you move from topic to topic, and you'll get, I think it's four s no, it's more than that. It's got to be ten essays on each of five topics, and they consider that a course on that topic. Now, are they, like, planning this ahead of time to say, like, okay, this person, you write on this aspect yes. of the internet. Yeah. Or whatever said topic might be. So it's not just oh, you know what, I'm going to write on this thing. And everybody else is like, huh, you know what, I'm going to write on this thing. No, their, their, attempt is the to, thing. their attempt is to give a, if you were to actually go take a college course on impressionist art, this is all the information that you would get. I see. But we're trying to condense it down into, you know, four or five hundred pages of reading with a really extensive index and bibliography and, you know, see other references kind of thing in the back. So Wikipedia. Kind of a Wikipedia kind of approach, yeah. Okay, all right. But with, I mean, it's with somebody who is a specialist in the topic, directing the learning process, rather Saying, than here's just... the way you need. Instead of just you know randomly clicking and ending up on philosophy all the time. <laughs> I, well, I actually thought that's how Wikipedia was done. 
<laughs> you just shattered my bubble. I always okay. get to Klingons. <laughs> that was Pete's line. <laughs> Look. <laughs> I liked the two of those women because they had boobs. <laughs> Klingon boobs. Boobs are boobs. The All big, right. The big idea really is increase your depth of knowledge in multiple fields. You know, with, with the direction of someone who who would normally teach this as a college course, saying, "Okay, here are you know the absolute minimums you need to know, and here's where to go if you want to read more and, and find out more on your own." Wow, that's fascinating. Are they planning to do additional volumes? I would hope so. I have certainly enjoyed the two volumes that I read. Okay. All right. Um, well, then uh, we'll post up a link to you know what these volumes are. Yep. I, I've already forgotten what the name is. The are. Bedside Baccalaureate. Oh, yes. I was so impressed with that term. <laughs> Good thing it lasted all of quickly about forgot it. three minutes. <laughs> well, just see if you can work the term baccalaureate into tonight's podcast as okay. many times as you can. We'll ring the bell each time we do. Each time we do what? Mention baccalaureate. <gasps> oh, my! <laughs> All right. Uh, you know, the spell has lost all meaning. Hasn't <laughs> <laughs> for my wife. <laughs> I was telling Pete a while back, I don't think we shared this on the podcast. My wife, every once in a while, listens to the podcast, and she came to me the other day and told me, you know, I was having a dream the other night, and in my dream, there was some foreshadowing of events that were about to happen, and all of a sudden I heard... <laughs> <laughs> Well, let us move into episodes then. We will be covering episodes 5 through 8 of Babylon 5 Season 3. And uh, we'll start off with the first episode, Voices of Authority. Joey, would you read the summary? The Conspiracy of Light attempts to contact some of the first ones in preparation for the coming battle, while Captain Sheridan faces off with his new political officer. Hang on a second. The the Conspiracy of Light? That's what their name is? Yeah. That's their name? Yeah. Why would they choose Conspiracy? That's the name that they... that uh, I think it was Sebastian gave them at the end of... Uh, Comes the Inquisitor. Inquisitor. Wow. Conspiracy of Light. That seems like the worst possible wasn't, choice. Wasn't that who, who first used the term? I think so. Okay. I mean, I like Army of Light, <laughs> the Warriors of Light. You, you feel that the word conspiracy has too many negative consequences? Yeah, really, kind of does. Okay, <clears throat> dragging them down. Well, I'm not even in favor of what the, whatever they're doing now. <laughs> it's clearly, a conspiracy. Oh. Um, okay, so turns out there are other old ones out there. Yeah, they haven't all just disappeared, except for you know how we never see them ever. But apparently there's other old ones out there. And so my first question is, okay, well, we know at least one old one race, and that's the Vorlons. Right. So why we does... We know it... at least two, the Vorlon and the Shadow. Uh, true. Uh, well, we're not going to ask the Shadow if they can help us out here. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> why doesn't the Vorlon, or specifically Kosh... Start going around and asking pull, for help. Pull, pull out his old one Rolodex and start making I, some calls? Yeah! <laughs> something! There is a very specific reason for that, but we can't tell it now. 
We will we will explain to it when we watch the episode Into the Fire. And for those listeners who've seen Into the Fire, they already know what the answer is. <sighs> All right. Well, I still think it was dumb that nobody in that entire room thought, "Hey, I wonder if we could ask Kosh for help on this." Maybe they did ask Kosh, and he said no. Clearly, Zog and Kosh don't get along. Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, <laughs> anyway, so who do we now have come back to help us? But Manic Drawl, <laughs> who offers to assist uh, Captain Sheridan to come down to the planet, plug in, and see if he can start, you know, finding where they're at. Because apparently the, that's one of the things that the, the planet machine can do. Yep. Which I'm not downing. I'm just saying, okay, we've got another thing that the machine does besides fire missiles off at people <laughs> who try and come down and visit it. And keep people alive for a really long time. Um, well, it's like with uh, the Apple products. You know, there's an app for that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, their uh, drawl makes a comment and I don't remember now what it was re referring to but I remember it being a stupid comment the screaming willies yes yeah. it gives me the screaming willies yeah I actually made a note here to say does anybody besides J. Michael Straczynski use that term in the script books he uses it at least once per volume really he just likes that term I don't know what it is I have never heard anyone else ever say that what was it in reference to? He'll say like, oh, you know, I have this no, recurring... No, 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 no. Drawl. In oh. this episode. Um, I don't remember now. He was, it was when he first showed up and he was telling them some of the things that he's seen out in the galaxy or something like that as he's watching. I don't remember the specifics, but... Yeah. He, <clears throat> I don't know. He likes that phrase, clearly. Yeah. It must be a colloquialism that we're just not <laughs> familiar with. Uh, uh, no longer colloquial. <laughs> um, okay, so in moving on with the story, uh, Jakar uh, comes to Delenn and says, Hey, I've been hearing things about these uh, group called the Rangers. You know anything about them? And she just kind of plays it sly. Yeah. And it's clear he's figured something out. And uh, he's trying to bait her into telling him more about it. Uh, and she just kind of lets it go. Yeah. It's a little frustrating, uh, <laughs> but uh, I I guess she's got to play it cool like that. Well, yeah, she... Because I guess Jakar's not ready. Right. I'm assuming. Or they're not ready to see Jakar that way, perhaps. Mm. Okay. Oh, I like that. I like that. Um, okay, and we have a new political officer <laughs> joined Babylon 5, strictly, you know, from, uh, from not, she wasn't a part of Nightwatch, but she was a part of the, the group that is supposed to be overseeing yeah. Nightwatch. But in reality, she's, you know, from Nightwatch yeah. uh, to, to come there. And she is um, helping uh, make actions more favorably in line with the political wing of what's actually yeah, going actually, on. Yeah, actually, I wanted to ask you about that. She's, she has a line. She's got a few lines that I just... I It angered me to Decisions watch this episode. Decisions made by military officers 
must reflect current governmental policy. I thought, really? That doesn't seem right to me. It, it does seem right to me, actually. To some extent, I suppose. There, there, there's a point at which it becomes wrong. I mean, uh, yeah. military is military. Military doesn't change with the mood of the American people or the or people of Earth the way the government will in a democracy. Uh, I agree, but when you get a political leader in there who's deciding, hey, you know what, this is going to become the thing that we do, and he, he's got enough power yeah. to move something around. I mean, you still have to follow the commander-in-chief. I just hope that the commander-in-chief is a reasonable enough guy <laughs> to understand that he can't go in and change the Uniform Military Code of Justice just because he doesn't like the color blue, you know? Well, I, what can I tell you? Clark uh, seems to be uh, yeah. uh, pushing the, the buttons here. I, I wanted to, to share from the script book here. Um, J. Michael Straczynski is talking about how this episode is... It's, he thinks it's one of his funnier scripts. He says, one unintentionally funny aspect of this episode took place in Sheridan's quarters when Julie Musanti makes her move and enters dressed in nothing but good intentions. When you shoot scenes in television that involve nudity, the performer in question is never actually nude. He or she is wearing carefully placed body dressing that covers all the bits that should not be broadcast, just in case the camera strays from its intended path. (laughs) But when we shot this scene, all those bits of let's say body dressing, kept coming off, much to the consternation of everyone except Sherry, who just took it all in stride. After several more applications refused to stay put, she finally said, don't worry about it, and soldiered on, letting the chips and everything else fall where they may. (laughs) I knew none of this until afterward, because the scene was shot on Friday right before lunch. Friday was barbecue day at the Babylon Five Stations. (laughs) I love baby back ribs. Can't get enough of them. So I wanted to be sure I got to the lunch truck early to guarantee getting just the right selection of back ribs. I checked the schedule and saw that Shari was going to be shooting the seduction scene. So I thought, hmm, let's see. Naked lady or ribs? (laughs) Naked lady or ribs? Ribs won. (laughs) Which leads to my theory that before age 40, naked lady wins. After age 40, ribs win. (laughs) That is so funny, dude. Because what... Well, what I think is so funny is the fact that she is probably the best-looking woman that they have had come on this show. Absolutely. <laughs> and he walks away from the chance where he's going to get to see her essentially naked. I, I That just baffled me. But then again, I'm, I'm under 40. <laughs> so I guess I clearly would have made my decision. Okay. Um, anyway, here's where I wanted to go with this. How good are the ribs? <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure that was not where Pete wanted to go with this. It, she's basically talking about how, you know, we we always need to do what's politically correct here. You know, what's going to what's gonna sound the best. We don't have a homeless problem ever since we oh, redefined the dictionary. Geez. Yeah, no crime, no poverty, no homeless. That's anything great to redefine your problems. Uh, no, I wanted to talk about something because... The whole debt ceiling vote took place this week. And Orrin Hatch ended up on Fox. They uh, did a... Um, uh, interview? Yeah, interview with him. 
where you know, they they talked about various things related to that. And the soundbite that I heard or that was played over the radio just absolutely angered me so much. <laughs> like I like was really really upset to hear this. I, I shouldn't be, but yeah, because that's what I I guess all politicians are now. But he was basically starting to go in and talk about, oh yeah, I, I'm Tea Party. Oh yeah, I, I'm I was Tea Party before there was a Tea Party. I you know, back when Reagan was around, I you know I I was the one who was who was out there you know really behind everything that he was doing. And I was thinking to myself, what in the hell are you talking about? How does this have anything to do with this? This is just you trying to grasp at the last vestiges of your power within the state of Utah as a senator because you are so frightened about losing your... Because the Tea Party has told him, you're out. Yeah. And it just absolutely... I I want him gone now. I am am on board with anything that that can happen to get rid of him because... Are you busy tomorrow? I have a meeting I'd like you to come to. (laughs) (laughs) Only if I get to wear a cool little arm sleeve. (laughs) That's the only reason I'm going to go to that. Um, But it just frustrated me so much to hear him talking like that. Because that is not what a politician should be about. He shouldn't be about there just trying to, you know, sound like what the people want. Uh, I'm reminded of the West Wing when uh, Joey Lucas, well, I think it was Joey Lucas, who says, Oh, you're like the... uh, um, the French revolutionist, uh, revolutionary, who's, you know, all of the people are running off to revolution. He's trying to run up to figure out what it is they're, you know, revolting about so he can go and lead them, you know, <laughs> instead of being the one that's up there leading them and showing them what to do. I, I just, that angered me so much to hear that, that I hear for declare Orrin Hatches out. As far as I'm concerned. And all of those votes that I've been selling to other people for all these years, I'm now going to start casting myself. Well, just tell them to people who want Orrin Hatch to leave. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I You voiced your uh, uh, feelings about Orrin Hatch before. And I've just sort of like, ah, I suppose he's alright, he's okay. But this time, no. He's forgotten what it's like to be a real person. He's just a senator now. Yeah. There's not and he there's has no longer a human being left there. He has absolutely no business being in there if that's the decision he wants to make. I'm with you 100%. Yeah. Okay. Um well, my little tirade is over, <laughs> I suppose. We'll get back to I, the episode. I'm with you. I this lady drove me nuts. I I paused it at one point and was trying to strangle her on my TV screen and my wife walked through saying, "What are you watching?" I was like, "Oh, Babylon 5." And she's like, "Is it just a bad episode?" I said, no, it's this lady. He wrote her so perfectly to be infuriating. Yeah. I don't care what side you're on. I don't care if you're politically left or politically right. This woman would drive you batty. Yeah. It, it, she reminded me of all of the horrible parts of 1984 and um, Atlas Shrugged. Like, she, just everything evil and disgusting about those books, that was her. Yeah. And uh, I... Ugh. Really, I, I. Do you think that they cast her in this particular role because she was so attractive? Yes, absolutely. You know, I think, yeah. To try and put, you know, okay, she's really, really good looking, which makes you want to just agree with her, <laughs> you know, because you agree with attractive people. But 
Oh, she's Listen asking to you to sell saying. your soul. Yeah. Oh, well. Um, okay, so moving on. Ivanova uh, now has to be the one to go down to the planet because Sheridan is sidled with this woman who is not going to let him go, you know, be off, you know, on his own. You know, she's going to, she's got her hooks into him, essentially. So if he were to leave, it would look conspicuous. Ivanova is sent. And she plugs into the planet machine. After into the Matrix. Yeah. <laughs> after uh, Drawl tries to play, you know, rough with her, like, hey, I only asked for Sheridan to come down here. And she comes up with some crap. I, I like her little thing about the surprise. I like surprises. I yeah. laugh at that. I think yeah. it's funny. It, it involves manic Drawl, so I'm uh, not in <laughs> and silly, favor. And Silly Ivanova with you, su- Silly Susan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dapper Drawl and Silly Susan. <laughs> it's a new comedy routine. <laughs> Oh, man. Um, anyway, so she's plugged into this thing, and she's searching out there, and she finds this one particular uh, uh, old race. Sigma 957. Fi- yeah, figures out where they're at and knows where they're going to need to be. In in process of that, she is connected to into this, and she sees some other ships approaching. Now, she tries to make it sound like they're supposed to be the shadow? It is the shadow. It's not another ship. But why were there such bright lights then? Why weren't they shadow ships? They weren't... It wasn't a ship. It was was a shadow. It was the eyes of a shadow being that she was seeing. Oh, I I totally didn't even recognize that. Yeah, it's it's actually the whole head of it. And then the eye... The the head is actually kind of faint outline. But the eyes are glowing bright orange. Whereas normally it's just a dark. If they okay, yeah, I guess that would probably make more sense. So it was psychic, psychically kind of grabbing her and pulling her in. Ah, I see. So it was out there searching as well for something. It sounds like maybe the shadow left somebody there because they knew we would be going there. Hmm. Or they have someone paying attention to it psychically because they knew they knew at some point. That would be where... Because, you know, the Shadow were around. They know that Sigma 957 is important to Zog, at least. <laughs> and so, you know, that's... That, they were watching and waiting for someone to go there looking for them. And then they were trying to pull her in say, okay, who are you? Kind of a, you know, parry in the mind of, of Saren kind of thing. Okay. Um, Pippin. Wow. I don't know why I said parry. Well, he was... Parry uh, the platypus. Uh, Anyway, so Ivanova comes back to contact Sheridan in his quarters. Right at the time where he's, you know... She's in her altogether? Yes. (laughs) The political lady is uh, sharing her political thoughts. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he he secludes himself for a minute in his room. um, And she, uh, she says, well... I think you are about to go where everyone has gone before. Because, you know, he's supposedly taking one for the team and going to sleep with this girl. And that line was hilarious to yeah. me. Absolutely hilarious. Because, I mean, that's clearly a Star Trek reference. Yeah. Right absolutely. there. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was funny. Uh, Marcus had a good line. He tells her, uh, the Minbari taught me, claim victory in your heart and the universe will follow. I thought that was an interesting concept. Um, there, there's Wait, one other... Marcus said that? Yeah. When when um, she was... Ivana was saying, I don't want to screw this up. She was pacing. 
And he's like, could you stop pacing like that? And she says, is there some other way you'd like me to pace? Yeah, that whole ship thing between Marcus and Ivanova. I you didn't like that? No, oh, not okay. really. I mean, it's kind of... I, be- I think I can con- say on, on air now, it got cut last week, but I can say on air now that... Marcus and Ivanova have a little romance thing, romance thing going. There's, there's supposed to be a love interest there. Well, I don't think we knew that yet. I think with the whole thing with the flowers and stuff. And Not in this episode. Oh, screw you. <laughs> Anybody who didn't pick up on it by now deserves to get spoiled, okay? <laughs> uh, anyway, um, Ivanova tricks the old race into helping. Um and then Zack and Garibaldi have a little friend fight uh, between each other. And uh, and then the, the woman is called home. Yeah. Uh, I wrote down a line, keep ideologically pure. Was that her? Yes. Was that one she of was her... talking to the Night Watch people. Right. Yeah, she was talking about the new policies and such. Yeah, that just angered me <laughs> so much. Well, it was supposed to. Yeah, um, um, there were a couple other things that I like, and this the the whole thing with the costume or the uniform being not fitting Zach right. <laughs> um, he he wrote in the script book about how after he'd released this script to the department heads for them to go over it, said for several days straight the head of the costume department would come in and poke her head in my office and say, "Hey, just wanted to make sure everything's going okay. You're happy with everything." And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, everything's fine." <laughs> you know, we've been doing this for three years. Go back and do your job kind of thing. And then he realized. So he, he says, I stopped by the costuming department and said, hey, I just wanted to let you know, the thing about the costume not fitting right, it's a joke. The character is, is we're just supposed to feel that the character is human. And she says, oh, I was so sure that you didn't know how to tell me the, the, the uniforms were wrong, <laughs> that you were having a character do it for you. <laughs> I personally don't care for the way that the the costumes were fitting, you know, in the entire series. But uh, have you ever noticed that Ivanova's is the only one that fastens on the left side? Everybody else's fastens on the right side. Yeah, yeah. The the whole fastening thing, uh, I've something is off. <laughs> it, it definitely is. Okay, I have one other thing I want to share out of the script book here. He says a word or three here about Jeff Conway. This is uh, Zach's character for people who mm-hmm. may not know. After we dispensed with Garibaldi's aid in season two, we needed to find someone else to fill that role. Then one day, Jeff Conaway walked in to audition for a very small role as a security guard. The guard didn't even have a proper name. He was just guard number two. I couldn't figure out why Jeff Conaway, of all people, would be interested in such a tiny role. Turns out he was a huge fan of science fiction in general and of Babylon 5 in particular. He just wanted to be there. We knew that Jeff had gone through some difficulties in the past, which he seemed to have grown beyond, and we were happy and eager to give him that chance. He did such a great job that I felt guilty about it being such a small role. So we brought him back. A lot. It was Jeff's likability that suggested him for the Nightwatch storyline. And he did a great job in communicating Zack's growing distress over the situation. He liked this episode in particular because he got to spend a great deal of time in character staring at Sherry Shattuck's <laughs> silhouette. Especially since it was required in the script and thus eminently justifiable. <laughs> I thought you'd get a laugh. Yeah, that's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. Um, all right, I, I don't have anything more to talk about. Uh, you mentioned Jakar with uh, Delin. Uh-huh. He also speaks to Garibaldi twice. Um, yes. Once saying, you know, 
I can help. I, I thought know. we were friends here. You know, don't lie to me like this. And at the very end, he gives him the book, book of, of Jaquan. Yeah. Here, the book of Jaquan. Read it. We'll talk later. <laughs> uh, so hold on. So we're okay. What? Well, no, no. Go ahead. We'll move on. We'll move on. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention is there's a throwaway line in the scene between Marcus and Ivanova, where he says, "Oh, well, maybe I'll just put a bucket on my head and pretend to be the ancient Vorlon god Buji." <laughs> yeah, um, thank you for remembering that. <laughs> so, who, who was it that posted? Was it Moneybags? Listener Moneybags that posted the. I don't remember. The You're link? the one who's uh, the head of Facebook. I'm the head of Facebook? Yes, the Facebook committee. Thank God. The committee consists of you and I. <laughs> I think somebody needs to tell Mark Zuckerberg about this change. <laughs> <laughs> Listener Brainy Smurf posted a link to the official site of Bougie. Um, so, if anybody's wondering what, as Pete and I were for a little while. Like, Pete showed me the link, and he's like, what is this? And I said, I have no idea. And then we got back to the house, and I got thinking about it. I thought, oh, it's that. It's Marcus says he's going to be the Vorlon god Bougie. <laughs> so there you go. That's what that, that – it's amazing that so, somebody built that entire website just off of this total throwaway line. <laughs> so does Straczynski ever discuss the Vorlon god Bougie? Not that I've found. <laughs> Do Vorlons believe in a god? Not that I've found. Well, yeah, bougie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I guess Mr. TikTok. Well, well, there's no way to know that. Um, <laughs> All right, uh, comments? Guys, yes, listen to comments. comments. Yep. All right, we're going to start off with uh, Moneybags. Uh, he says, a better batch of episodes this week, with the exception of Exogenesis. <laughs> Sigh. Luckily, Joey's warning was received in time, and I didn't have to. And I didn't have to subject myself to Keffer trying to act. To simulate the experience of watching this episode, I gave myself two vigorous slaps in the face in quick succession. It's about the same thing, and it saves forty-four minutes. <laughs> On to the episodes. Voices of authority. Uh, is it just me, or does it feel like Delenn and Marcus are in charge of that meeting? And then Drawl shows up. Sorry, he shows up! <laughs> Good one, Pete. Well done. And we, well, he, that's the way he wanted me to read it. Uh, and we get exposition about the first ones. Sigh. This episode is pretty good, but it still feels like two B-plots. Why can't Drawl just relay the information to Ivanova? Why do we need a whole plot about her going down to the planet and essentially just logging on to the interstellar internet? <laughs> and the way we find out about Clark's conspiracy just feels silly. A nice touch to have Morden's voice on the other end of the message, though. Yeah, you know, we totally forgot about that whole part of the, of the plot. Because it's really important that it it's going to yeah. get used later on in these uh, episodes. Um, next, the Ministry of Peace chick arrives. I would like to preemptively award her the Hot Chick Award for this season. <laughs> a bunch of giggly guys. <laughs> Nightwatch is getting creepy. Do people who think like this woman actually exist? Yes, I'm related to several of them. Yeah. It is getting creepy. <laughs> Wasn't Nightwatch creepy? I would like to think that if someone like Clark took power in this country... He would be impeached as soon as stuff like this started happening. But I'm not so sure. That's, you know what? It, I suddenly realize we need to get you in power. 
We need to get you elected to Congress. So that I can get impeached? (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. You've got me there. Um, uh, And we see a first one. Ugh. I suppose there's no way these guys could have lived up to the hype. The whole uh, scene is just lame. Especially when Ivanova convinces him to join them using... Drum roll, please. Reverse psychology. <laughs> Are you kidding me? At least we get to see Marcus and Ivanova together, which I'm pleased to say is just as entertaining as the second time around. Marcus should be annoying, butting in and telling Ivanova how she needs to relax, but for some reason, he's not. And then Masante is recalled, re- uh, resolving the plot out of nowhere. All we get in this episode is some exposition more about how Night Watch is creepy and a floating head. TV five, sci-fi five. I think I think he did a good job summing that up for me. Okay. I'm I'm right with money bags on this. Okay. She's still good looking. She is. I, you know I don't think she she changed the first one's mind. I I think we're supposed to get from that that the what she did was she convinced the first one to deign to communicate with her in a language she could understand. That was what he was planning on doing the whole time. Well, how do, how do you know that? I don't. I'm saying that's what I believe. That's what you believe? Yes. Everything about the way that she did that makes it seem like she tricked him into doing it. She, she certainly thought she was tricking him into doing it, but what I think is he turned around and he said, All right, fine. Come here when you need me. Call me and I will be here. Even though he only gave a one sound... I'm assuming Zog. that's supposed to be a word. It's actually his name. In the script, it says Zog when he's supposed to talk. Oh, jeez. <laughs> okay, that didn't help the case at all. I can also see it being uh, her proving to to the superior race, I'm willing to piss you off just to get you to pay attention to us. Like, we know that people have been by here before. Um, Jakar tells the one love interest yeah Yeah. that you know we've gone there we we've tried to communicate with them is that the same planet yes Yes. so that was that same i tried to say that earlier yeah oh okay you didn't say that well enough for me to understand well you are kind of thick i have put on some weight (laughs) it's true okay let's go on to uh brainy smurf he says uh previous vorlon facts include they are very powerful but easily poisonable. They would rather let Kosh die than allow his suit to be opened. Their doubts lead them to employ serial killers. They masquerade as angels. And this week we discover that their ancient bucket-headed god is named Bougie. <laughs> and the first ones with giant smoky faces totally hate them. One of the most skilled guitarists in the world is named Buckethead, but his bucket is from a KFC. Nonetheless, if it came down to a duel, Buckethead would shred the Vorlon, the Shadows, Charlie Daniels, and the Devil, who is clearly Bester. <laughs> Sci-Fi 8, TV 6. He took a weird tag. His things are really abbreviated here this <laughs> week. Apparently so. there's a musician named Buckethead. Yeah, apparently there is. And he's really, really great. Okay. I think that's what we can take away from this. Pete, your science fiction rating. Okay, uh, I'm with uh, 
with the uh, money bags on this. It's a five. I mean, yeah, we've got a bunch of, of sci-fi stuff. Ivanova plugs into the planet. Yeah, okay, we see a new one. Yeah, five. I, I wasn't impressed. I don't hate the episode, but I just I wasn't impressed enough to think that this is good science fiction. I was more impressed than you were. I gave it a seven. Okay, Aaron? I also gave it a seven. Um, uh, as far as television, uh, I think the fact that they have a hot chick on here, <laughs> um, and she spouts off so many evil things, yeah. I think that that's going to catch people's attention. So I'm going to say, despite all of the w- other weird science fictiony stuff that goes on, and including Drawl and his <laughs> manic attitude, I'm going to give it a five. Wow. Uh, I also gave this a seven for television. Wow. I If this hadn't had the hot chick, this would be like a three or a two. I, I really enjoy the Marcus Ivanova stuff. I find oh, it very okay. interesting. I, okay. All right. That, I understand your okay. where your rating comes from then. I give this a six. Um, not so much the, the Marcus Ivanova. I do like them those two together, but the uh, I really like Jakar trying to, to, to Get show these people, I'm ready, I'm here, let me in. It was a very okay. So, very question for you, Aaron: yeah. Do you actually think Jakar is ready when this episode happens? No. Do you think he's ready, Pete? Uh, I think he should have been brought in earlier. Hmm. Um, I would say I don't think Jakar is quite ready either. I think that he should have been brought in earlier because I think he could have been made to be when when he comes back after you know fighting off some shadow himself, being chased down. I think he's ready. He's clearly sobered himself. Yes, he's going to get rung through the ringer even more, but I think he was ready at that earlier time. When he starts talking about how this other race is out there, Delenn should have been talking to him saying, good, I'm glad somebody else knows this, but now you need to be quiet about this, and here's why. Here's why you need to be quiet. Okay. I, I, I think he was ready then. Okay. Moving on to our next episode, Dust to Dust. Ashes to ashes. On you go. Kosh gives Jakar an opportunity to change the direction of his life during a visit from Vester. Uh, During a visit from Mm Vester? So Vester's coming to visit Jakar? No. I think you need to adjust the subject of that statement. My remedial English feels (laughs) that that might be incorrect. Okay. Anyway, uh, Bester's here, and uh, that's a good thing. Well, not for the rest of the people on there, but for, <laughs> for us as for the audience, audience okay, I got you. I got it's you. a good thing. Yes, for the audience, it's definitely I mean, a good he's thing. totally depraved and is trying to destroy humanity. And Sheridan should have sat back and let Ivanova shoot him out of the sky. <laughs> uh, let me read here. One of the essential goals of this episode was to keep Bester as a force to be reckoned with. The danger of having a recurring bad guy in any TV series is that after he loses X number of times, you stop taking him seriously. I like to call it the Skeletor Syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) Having to use form and body telepaths just to hold him back helped to reinforce the seriousness of Bester as an enemy and to show that he was perfectly capable capable of projecting strength even even without that aspect. But the most important part of keeping him a viable character and a real threat in this episode was ensuring that Bester either won or was at least right at every turn. And he does both. 
He's right about the menace, right in how he deals with Sheridan's demands, right when he says the core is sometimes all that stands between humanity and the abyss, and right in how he goes after the dust threat. He spends basically the entire episode being right, and while there's nothing more annoying than Bester when he's right, it serves to keep him alive as a three-dimensional character. To that end, much credit has to go to Walter, who in this episode gets to show a selection of colors that were usually outside of the character's palette. One of the great joys of doing Babylon 5 was being able to give Walter and other actors a chance to perform a range of roles they hadn't previously tackled. Walter, by nature, is fairly quiet and reserved, soft-spoken, but with a very sly sense of humor that peeks out from time to time. And he was able to bring that sense of sly humor to the table in the interrogation scene in this episode. Nuclear vessels. <laughs> There's one aspect of Bester's character the casual viewer might not notice. I'm curious, do either of you know what it is? As soon as I read that sentence, I knew what he was going to be talking about. I was just wondering... No? His left hand never opens. Walter came to me one afternoon during the first season and said he thought it might make a nice character bit, an indication of some kind of trauma he'd suffered at an early age, which caused his fist to close and never open again. I thought it was a cool idea and said yes. So whenever you see Bester, that hand remains in a closed, cold fist. In rewatching the episode in preparation for writing this, I realized that the earpieces that Bester and Gail Arbaldi wear in the cargo area look exactly like contemporary Bluetooth earpieces. I don't know why, but that pleases me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. All right, so um, I want to start off by saying Sheridan is, you know, the savior of free speech aboard Babylon 5. Because at the very beginning, we have that Nightwatch guy, you know, bullying that shop owner uh, because the shop owner had put up anti-Clark things. Yeah. Because he's saying, hey, look, the news is broadcasting it out there. Clark is clearly, you know, he needs to get thrown out. And so the Nightwatch guy is like, hey, you can't put this stuff up here. I'm going to report you. You're going to be in trouble. And Sheridan jumps down that guy's throat yeah. and clearly stands up to say, there's a difference between the office, and the person who's in there. And uh, I, I've really enjoyed that particular scene, and it made me like Sheridan so much more because of it. Okay. If I didn't like him before, I like him now. But and you're not saying whether you liked him before. I was a little on the fence, <laughs> but uh, Tron came through. Um, okay, so I want to pose the question. Why not just kill Bester? <laughs> Because right. Bester's not the problem. Well, he's, <laughs> yeah, he is. he's clearly a thorn in the side. <laughs> he's, he may not be the main problem, but he's a problem. He is a problem, but he is not the problem. Granted, they are just going to send somebody right. else. Right. Exactly. I don't see this as a, okay, well, the devil you know I beats totally the devil you don't. I totally see That's actually the line I was going to use. Yeah, I, I don't buy that, though. Why? Because... It, He's evil. Psychor is supposed to be evil. Yes. Everything that comes out All of them... All of Psychor is evil. ...is supposed to be evil. So, what's it matter whether or not you get one evil guy over another? At least you'll get the satisfaction of killing one of them. <laughs> and once you set the precedent of blowing them out of the air as they approach... <laughs> it becomes so much easier. So much easier. Uh, blowing them out of the vacuum. Uh, just, yeah. just release. Ah, uh, yeah. We killed another one. 
You know, he, he uh, Sheridan interrupts Ivanova and tells her, you need to fight them without becoming them. I have to say, for myself, that's something I've always had trouble with. It's a, it's a concept that when I want to go fight someone, I find it much easier to think like they think and act the way they would act and be successful at that than it's, to try and stay above it. it. It's clear that it worked for Ender um, w- within his particular universe. He, you know, took the tactics of, uh, of the buggers and won because of it. Yeah. So I, I think that that's totally legitimate. Okay. Uh, but uh, that's a horrible, horrible thing for you to say, Joey. Uh, you know, on the aside. Um, okay. Um, the the Mimbari telepaths. Was it just me, or did they just look... These Mimbari just appear to be just like blank slates. I was going to say malnourished. (laughs) (laughs) Malnourished is a good word. I like that. It it just didn't seem like they they looked... That would be my baccalaureate vocabulary. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. And that was foreshadowing as well. We're going to come to find out that uh, all Mimbari are sadly uh, uh, malnourished. Malnourished. Well, come on, they don't even take baths. They use a chemical that strips the upper layer of the skin. Okay, um, Veer also comes back, and uh, he's clearly gone native. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he is enjoying his time there. And uh, um, I can't remember, does he do anything else within the episode? I can't remember. He talks to Delin and Lanier, I, and I like that conversation. We'll come back to that. Okay. But I want to talk a little bit about his entrance here. Or rather, J. Michael Straczynski wants to talk a little bit about his entrance. Similarly, I hadn't been able to use Viren some time due to his outside commitments. Uh, you said I didn't mention this, but in a previous volume, uh, J. Michael Straczynski told us that Stephen First had actually gotten a job as a main role on a television sitcom that never actually made it. Why didn't you tell us this is what these books are for? I'm telling you you should have told us before. <laughs> when he first leaves, you should have told us. I am. Uh, that, that's this why is, the this appointment is so upsetting. This is. I feel cheated. I feel this as though you. Uh, I will. I was let down. <laughs> yeah. I, I just don't know who you are anymore, Joey. <laughs> I am. Was Joey. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's something wrong with that statement, too. But continue on about uh, Stephen. So it says, I hadn't been able to use Veer due to his outside commitments, so this episode represented a chance to bring both of them back into the story. During the production meeting on this episode, the question arose, what should Veer be wearing when he returned from Minbar? Should he be clad in the Centauri version of a business suit, or something more ceremonial, like what Londo wears? I don't remember who suggested it, but at some point in the discussion, someone said, come on, guys, it's Veer. He'd come back wearing a Minbari version of a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> Which can also be used to indicate that he's starting to go native. And that's what we did. I think it must have been very late in the day when we had that meeting. <laughs> I think that's still a reasonable thing I think so, to yeah. do. Yeah. So I don't think that was bad. Uh, okay, well, good share there, Joey. That's uh, what these books are for. Uh, I appreciate <laughs> you doing that. Um, now, we have Dust. Yes. This evil, evil drug that, uh, you know, has only really been used on humans, and it kind of makes them go crazy and well, it telepathically... Well, telepathic, yeah. Yeah, and uh, uh, it's apparently never been tested on aliens. Right. 
Uh, we'll come to find out at the end. I think it's because it was engineered to be specifically for humans. Right. It was Psychor attempting to increase the success of creating telepaths within the human population. Yeah. Um, so, Jakar manages to get a hold of it. Yeah. And apparently Dust has been around before. Um, not we a lot. We actually heard it all about it all the way back in Season 1. Why is it that um, it's such a big deal now? It kind of seemed like dust is is you know people get hooked on it and it's been around here for a while that's what it's, i kind of walked away it with. hasn't been on babylon 5 a whole lot they've done a pretty oh, good I job see. of yeah, like keeping a, it off this is a major shipment coming in i see okay which consists of two briefcases but did you see how much of it was in that in those two briefcases i mean it was quite a bit of the well I, I saw how much the briefcase could potentially hold well they opened it yeah, and it's still two briefcases. Okay. Right. When I think of a major drug shipment, you know, I'm thinking well, of, you know, a pretty huge, huge thing. With security but, like Babylon 5 has, it'd be hard to... <laughs> yes, the crack team of security <laughs> that Babylon 5 has. Well, you've won me over with that argument, Aaron. <laughs> hey, you got to pay a lot of money to, get, to bribe those guys. Okay, so Jakar gets some, and he buys it. He decides to use it uh, because he wants to see if this can be something that he can send back to uh, the, his home planet and have them use to be able to, to help him out. Yep. Come to find out, it's really not something that they're going to be able to use because he goes nuts. Yeah. All of a sudden, he's starting to hear all of these things, and he can't handle it. I mean, he, you can see him as he's walking down the hall and those people pass. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Covers his face. Uh, what's going on? But he's specifically got a reason, uh, a purpose for where he's going. And it is to go and see Londo. Yep. And uh, he gets in there and he psychically attacks him as well as physically attacks him, <laughs> clearly. Well, yeah, um, but he just beats the crap out of Veer. <laughs> doesn't psychic whammy him at all it is was so he lifts uh, supposedly you know lifts veer up with one arm was that because he was drug induced and that kind of you know made him well no we've seen hyper him be strong, strong before or is jakar incredibly strong jakar is incredibly strong the narn are physically strong okay all right it's good i good distinction to share out there um Apparently, Jakar manages to take him off to some other secluded place. It's the place where the Narn always hold their meetings. I don't understand how he can manage <laughs> to get either. there. Yeah, I a big roll of my eyes when when that. If it had just been inside Londo's quarters, I think it would have been better. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he beats him up, and he has some other sort of psychic connection yeah so he goes in and he does what bester had warned that the drug dust allows for which is basically telepathic rape uh-huh which you know we haven't seen since the battle days of the <laughs> star trek next generation i know they just really didn't use that in the west wing enough <laughs> i felt that that was one particular aspect of the storyline that yeah. they just left <laughs> psychic raping <laughs> But I I really love this scene. Well, I, I, you know, you get to see Jakar um, come to realize exactly the role that Londo had in what happened to his homeworld. And 
just as he is about to, I mean, he he's clearly. I think he's going to kill him. everything away, and I, I think it's clear that he's about to kill both yeah. himself and Londo. I think they're both about to die. Oh, you think he was going to kill himself? He starts screaming, Baijiquan, make it stop. He is. You hear him screaming underneath the build of the music. Oh, I kind of thought that that was related to what he was seeing from Londo. I got the impression that it was building in him, and he couldn't turn it off. He could not figure out how to stop being psychic, and they were just both going to burn out right there on the ground. Well, I, I can also see it being him being unable to stop himself. Right. It's yes, I, I, I need to. Off. I can feel this is pain. I need to stop, but I need to know more. So he has a a little vision where he sees his father telling him, "It's too late for me, Jacquard, but it's not too late for you. Honor my name." I, and I, I just I love this uh, dialogue here. He says, the, the image tells him, We are a dying people, Jakar. So are the Centauri, obsessed with each other's death until death is all we can see, and death is all we deserve. And Jakar interrupts with, The Centauri started it. And he says, Okay, and you're just going to continue it until there are no more Narn and no more Centauri? If both sides are dead, no one will care which side deserves the blame. And it will not matter. It no longer matters who started it. It only matters who's suffering. Now, it turns out that you this didn't say is... baccalaureate in any of that. <laughs> you just weren't listening. You tuned out. <laughs> turns out that this is Jakar, and we know that for two reasons. First of all, we should know it as soon as Jakar says, as soon as Jakar's father says, "I have always been here." Uh-huh. That's Kosh's line. Right? Yeah. That's Kosh's assertion. You, by the way, you just see... said Jakar. Yes. Sorry, I think you meant to say Kosh. Oh, sorry, yes. Is... That is Kosh's line, sorry. Okay, yeah. And then we also see the form of Kosh kind of secreting away as we see... Fla- flapping away. <laughs> it doesn't look all that secretive to me. It seems I was actually like, referring oh, to the encounter suit version of Kosh. As he... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, within the mind of Jakar, is that supposed to be Jaquan? That he's no, it's, seen? it's Jalan. Jalan. Yes. Yeah, who's that? <laughs> That's the angelic figure that he sees yeah. in the garden. I see. Okay. When he when they all have that other hallucination, he actually says, "Oh, it's Jalan." Oh, okay. I missed that. I I I know he. I thought it was. He thought it was Jaquan. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, essentially. I think Kosh is giving him a chance. This is the point at which I think Jakar finally becomes ready to be involved. Kosh steps in and says, Jakar, there is so much more you could be doing here if you would get outside of your own pain and suffering and anger and recrimination and look at what you can do for the entire galaxy. Mm. And I I really like, and I can't wait until Into the Fire when we can come back and talk about what Kosh said here and how that relates to other things that are going on in the script. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm assuming Jakar then turns himself in. Yes. And even though it's not explicitly stated in there, that's the feeling that I came away with. Um, he then goes before the, the judge, and he basically says, yeah, I'm guilty. Please no I, contest. You know, I, I'm, I'm guilty. And he only gets 60 days. Well, he didn't kill anybody. He beat the crap out of someone. Yeah. Telepathically raped them. 
used an illegal drug, and he gets 60 days. I think it's clear that the judge feels some sympathy towards the Narn situation. Uh, I I just don't find... This isn't realistic at all. This is also like a first thing that he's done. You know, everything else that he might have done before would be like him as an ambassador, so he had immunity. Londo would be screaming his head off about this. He would be calling for the death of Jakar. <laughs> and Londo conspicuously is absent in all of this. You know, the person who would be accusing him is nowhere to be found. Well, he was in uh, MedLab. Yeah, MedLab. <laughs> they couldn't possibly hold the trial over for a little <laughs> while and wait till he's able to come. He was also I'm, just barely... He, he was forced to uh, basically acknowledge the things that he'd done... Um, to destroy Jakar's race. Look, I get that there's going to be shame from, from Londo's perspective, but nonetheless, I mean, they hate them so much. Is Are we supposed to be buying at this point that Londo is changing at this point too? No. Because of this? I don't think so either. But he's not... It's 60 days! I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying you're wrong at all. Because I also thought it was a light, pretty light sentence. Yeah. But... I can can live as long as you're willing... As long as you're willing to acknowledge this, I can move on. It seemed like a light sentence to me as well. You also have Sheridan coming forward saying... She clearly says, no, I'm sorry, Captain. Everything you said, I'm throwing it out. Yeah. There was clear premeditation here. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I... Well, but just the fact that somebody would come forward... You know, no, I, a, a guy I, I, in his position. I, I see. I see. I do see your point, Pete. But I, I don't think it matters all that much in the grand scope of things. How long Jakar is actually spending in there? It's the process that he goes through while he's in there that really is important. I I, I think the the process, yes, is important, but this is not realistic, and okay. that that frustrated me. Uh, a couple things I wanted to mention. Um, the, uh, they use a line in here, the lack of new construction among, uh, is Londo saying, uh, oh, the lack of new construction among the Minbari is clearly evidence of a struggling economy. As Vera keeps trying to say, you know, what a great place Minbar is and all of this other stuff. I, I really laughed They're at that. They're very spiritual. Yeah, that you can leave in. It always scares people. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Garibaldi accuses Bester of using intimidation as a tactic. He's like, you can't use intimidation like that. That is so wrong. Meanwhile, it's apparently okay to grab the guy's hair and kind of shake him around. <laughs> Uh, I... What? Why? I think think that's a total setup so that Bester gets to deliver the line. Okay, okay. My badge and uniform are no different than your badge and uniform. Alright, Pete, listener comments? Yes. Uh, We'll go to Moneybags. He says, Okay, Nightwatch is getting really creepy. Yeesh. And it's, it's a Bester episode. Automatic plus one. Ivanova almost kills him. This is quite a what-if moment given later events in the series. I would have liked to have see, uh, to see a callback to this later in the series, but oh well. Sheridan uses Minbari telepaths. Hmm. More alien influence on Babylon 5. Uh, no, he didn't say baccalaureate. 
Sorry. He said telepaths. Telepaths. Babylon. Uh, Babylon. <laughs> Again, here's something we wouldn't see on Star Trek. A main character using illegal drugs to help a war effort. I would have liked to see more between Jakar and Londo, though. We don't even see him beating Londo. I'm glad we didn't actually... I'm glad we did not see that. No, we need a 20-minute clip of just him punching him. Oh, no. The, the stage the, fighting the, and the, the snaking moves? Picking what? him up no. and throwing him. Come on. <laughs> no Blue thing. cyclone kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, and Jakar even goes to prison for it. No extenuating circumstances. No diplomatic immunity, since he's no longer a diplomat. A bold move. No one on Star Trek ever seems to suffer any penalties for the crazy crap they pull. <laughs> except for the dreaded black mark on their record. TV6, Sci-Fi 7. Okay. I don't know, Wesley got exiled from that one planet. <laughs> Which is a real shame, because uh, I think he could have used that. Uh, uh, Brainy Smurf says This week Untouched by a Vorlon <laughs> Jakar is Teleraped by Della Reese Sci-Fi 9 TV 6 <laughs> I like that Gosh, is, is Della Reese now? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you so find funny. out that other lady's I thing. know. Oh, I, I didn't. I didn't go look at them. They didn't care. Joey, what do you want for science fiction, man? Uh, I'm going to give this a seven for science fiction. You have dust. You have telepaths. You have the scene between Londo and Jakar telepathically, and then the scene between Jakar and Kosh telepathically. I think this is pretty science fictiony. Okay, Aaron, seven. Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to disagree with both of you. Um, I felt like this is an eight. Uh, okay. There's definitely some very good science fiction themes that were used in this, and despite the fact that they get the you know that sentencing wrong, <laughs> there were enough of that that I felt was really powerful enough. The whole Bester stuff, you could feel the animosity from sure. uh, from uh, Claudia Christensen in this. I felt like she really finally delivered an emotional scene that worked well, and I. That the idea of Bester of the Psychor is really carried through quite strong here. It was good. It was good. Okay. For television, I'm actually going to give this an eight. I think this is mm. really good stuff. Um, the the Jakar scene, I, I love the change you see almost immediately, and and the job that uh, Walter Koenig does as Bester is just peerless. Really good stuff. I give it a nine. Wow. Um, Jakar is my favorite character in the yeah. entire series. I love the change that starts in him here. And uh, Bester is creepy as always. I wish they would have shot Bester out of the sky. That, that would have just been an awesome thing. But, uh, yeah. Good, uh, good TV. I, I don't agree with you guys too much. Uh, and I, I don't know if it's because of the, the telepath stuff. Uh, that I think it gets in the way too much of of what would be considered good television. I only give this a six. It wasn't because I hated anything. I just didn't think it was stellar. Okay. I didn't feel like any of the performances. Well, yeah, Claudia Christensen finally got it right. Okay. I, I, she's not going to get, you know, move the, the rating any just because she finally managed <laughs> to get a scene right. Um, so I, sorry if you disagree with me. 
The uh, P5 rating for this is 8.60. Moving past our next episode, Exogenesis. <laughs> Dr. Franklin and Marcus tangle with a new symbiotic race. Okay. Okay, let me read from the J. Michael Straczynski book here. Well, but it says new. Didn't Picard fight this race? (laughs) 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 I don't like to outline. Okay, fine, let me be clearer. I hate writing outlines. Some people, the sort of people one shouldn't associate with, love outlines. For me, it's all about, writing is all about the pressure cooker approach. About letting the story build up until it has to be told all at one sitting. Until it burns out, until you can't not write it. So you're behind the keyboard in white heat, and it's all just there. Mm, He's a a procrastinator, isn't he? (laughs) He That's what it sounds like to me, because that sounds like every paper that I ever wrote in high school or college. (laughs) Outlines suck all the air out of that process. You have to guess how the story is going to go before you're into it. And as someone once said of warfare, no plan of battle ever survives contact with the enemy. I often end up having to fight the outline as soon as I begin writing, because invariably something better comes to mind. Uh, and then he says the word, the words hate them about 15 times. Uh, but he, he goes on to say, this episode is one case where not liking to outline bit me. As noted in volume 5, I was halfway through writing Exogenesis when a labor action hit the Babylon 5 stages, shutting down production until we were able to come to a deal with the Union. During that period, every inch of my brain was attuned to the necessity of saving the show, which drove out everything else I was doing, thinking, or thinking about doing. After the labor issue was resolved a week later, I sat down to write the second half of Exogenesis and realized to my horror, the rest of the story was gone. When I'd started writing the script without any notes, the story was absolutely crystal clear in my mind. Now, there was nothing. I had a general notion of where it was supposed to go, but the specifics of the end, how I was going to get there, and the bits in the middle, all of it, had evaporated without a trace. Uh, He then goes on to relate the story of uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge writing Kublai Khan. And it was supposed to be like his greatest poem ever, and it's actually a really good poem, but it stops right in the middle of the poem. And the story is that uh, a knock came at the door. When he returned from the knock at the door, the poem was gone and remains unfinished to this day. Just sounds like a lazy poet to me. (laughs) You are such a bad writer. You have no idea. (laughs) Oh, yeah. From the guy who doesn't ever write anything. (laughs) This explains why the first half of this episode is a decent setup, while the second half is just mind-numbingly awful. It's not my fault. (laughs) <laughs> a dog ate my homework <laughs> if I'd had my wits about me which is a stretch on any day I would have dumped the entire script and written something else but we'd lost so much time due to the labor action I didn't think I could justify the risk I figured, come on you're a professional writer sooner or later you'll find your way back to the story as I write this, it is 2006 and I still haven't found it <laughs> honest and true if I were in your position I'd skip this commentary and go right to messages from Earth and the rest because there's some really cool stories in there. If you stay beyond this point, I can't be held responsible for boredom, nausea, or anything whatsoever regarding your sex life. <laughs> so, this just to episode, be clear. This episode made me sterile. <laughs> Even J. Michael Straczynski admits this is his worst script this season. Um... I think I know who's to blame. 
okay. for this going off the rails. I think Doctor Franklin. <laughs> uh, honestly, I mean, for me, this becomes a Franklin and Marcus. Yeah, it does. Uh, you know, hey, let's let's make a buddy move. You know, uh, episode and let's go off and chase after these guys and dumb, dumb, dumb. There was one funny scene. Look into the end and shake it real hard. <laughs> the thing comes up and catches the guy yeah. in the face. I really laughed at that. Nice little bit of physical comedy. Um, why don't they hold a blood drive for aliens? They talk about how, oh, you know, we're running low on blood for this. Yeah, you know, we, we haven't gotten any from the, their planet. Uh, we'll have to use synthesized stuff. They have creatures on the station... Why don't they have stations out there where they can go and harvest blood? Because the blood? synthetic stuff is simpler. It's a simpler solution. Yeah, but it's clear that he wants the real stuff. Yeah. So I think with a, enough of those aliens going through that they could easily be putting on a blood drive every week to have somebody come through and get some blood for these. They don't have the room for the cookies and soda in their budget. <laughs> Or shoes. Well, they won't have to make synthetic stuff anymore, so the budget has been, uh, you know, met with. Anyway. Um, I wish we I, actually I, found out more about synthetic blood. I think that's an interesting idea. That I, I would like to hear, I've heard more about it at some point in the storyline. Okay. Um, apparently the mission of these creatures, whatever they are, is to be the universal um, historians. They're the hitchhiker's guy. <laughs> Right? Oh, man. Yeah, when this started up, I started, it got me thinking, oh my gosh, this is Stargate all over again. <laughs> they're just reinventing this. But then turns out that, you know, they're not like the Goa'uld, who are, you know, these horrible evil creatures. That That's something else. By the way, the, the guys, when they take over a human, they refer to themselves as, I am, was Duncan. Yeah. That I was making a reference to that in the previous recording. Right, okay. Uh, it was dumb then, it was dumb now. <laughs> uh, and that actor, I, none of this worked for me, I, and so I have nothing more to say about this. Okay. Aaron, you have anything else? else How to stupid say? is Franklin to say, no, I'll let you continue, but talk to me first. It's basically, I mean, Picard would have never did. He did the right thing, he shot them. You shoot the the creepy... They're by volunteer. It's clear by the end of the episode. It's totally volunteer basis. Aaron, if you want to volunteer your body to be taken over by a living version of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I 100% support you in that. Hey, this thing's going lazy to the end. <laughs> well, I don't know. That... It seems like that would be the laziest way to go, is just hand yourself entirely <laughs> well, no. over to some other Cause, creature. Because then it's going to keep my body working probably better to mm. ensure its longevity. Well, I think it was clear that they just had some kind of enzyme or something they secrete <laughs> that makes people healthier. <laughs> All right, I'm done. Yeah. Uh, we don't have anything from money bags. He just didn't bother to write. Good for him. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, Brainy Smurf says, "Poor Lieutenant Corwin. It is always sad to see one of your buddies trying to pick on a pick up a girl whom, unbeknown to him, is actually a lesbian. <laughs> Perhaps that comment should be redirected towards Marcus. This episode, this episode is unrateable. Wow, <laughs> unrateable. Okay." 
Um, let's see here. Uh, Aaron, science fiction. Uh, I'll give it a five. These these things are an interesting idea. Uh, yeah, I don't mind the idea of them. It's just the way that it was. The whole thing was delivered. Um, I, I I give it a five as well. I'm right with you guys. I give it a five. I do want to note note that there's a character in one of the uh, one of the medical scenes. He he says, "Hey, doctor, so and so, I need you to go do something." Um, that is Kosh out of his encounter suit. That's the guy who lives in the Kosh encounter suit and moves it around. Oh, good for him. He's finally getting a little screen time. Uh, let's see here. Jeffrey Willard, who played Kosh, is present as Dr. Steinhoff. So they let him fit through a door this time? <laughs> <laughs> Aaron, TV reading? Two. Um, I give it a three. Well, you're generous. I gave it a two as well. The P5 rating for this is a brain-numbingly high 7.34. I've never seen any of these go low. I, I don't understand <laughs> these P ratings. I don't understand them at all. It's the average of people who wrote in and gave it a 1 to 10 rating. Yeah, I, I'm just saying I, I don't understand their ratings. It just doesn't make sense. Okay. It's, it's, it, for me, it's a 1 plus the thing Joey talked about, the shake the end. That, that's, that gave me a giggle enough to bump it up another number. Moving on to our next episode... Messages from Earth. Sheridan takes the White Star into Earth space to destroy a decommissioned shadow ship. Decommissioned? Oh, that's the word I pulled out of thin air. Do you think it was the wrong choice? Buried. Buried. All right. Abandoned. Okay. Before we get talking about the episode, I want to take this opportunity to read a rather lengthy little essay here from Mr. Szynski. Oh, we haven't had a lengthy episode before. I haven't read the entire essay yet. This will be my first time doing it. Okay, go ahead. February 13th, 2006. I recognized Peter Jurassic's voice on my answering machine long before he said his name. Unlike the voice, I have grown accustomed to hearing during the five years we've worked together. Today it was tired and sad and broken. Joe, it's Peter, he said softly. Give me a call as soon as you can. I need to talk to you about our dear friend Andreas. Oh, we covered this before. I, did, well, I said that he had an essay, but I hadn't read it yet. This oh, is the I actual see. essay. Hmm. This is his goodbye to Andreas Kostelis. And in that moment, I knew Andreas was gone. It was a year earlier that I first learned that Andreas had lung cancer. I was returning from a trip to New York, had just turned on my cell phone before jumping into a cab, when it registered a voice message from Walter Koning, saying, Call me. I was exhausted from the long flight, wanted nothing more than to close my eyes and recover as the cab roared up the 405. But there are moments when you hear a tone in someone's voice that says, don't wait. So I didn't. I called Walter from the cab. He picked up the phone on the second ring. Have you heard about Andreas, he asked. My gut lurched. It was scant months since we had lost Richard. This is uh, Dr. Franklin, died from a uh, heart condition. And the phone call about his passing had begun in very much the same way. What happened? He's dying, Walter said. I just got the word from Bill Moomy. It's starting to filter out to the rest of the cast. I was hoping you might know more about what's going on. I told him this was the first I'd heard of it, and I checked my cell phone. I didn't have Andreas's phone number programmed in, and it would be too late to call by the time I got home. I was loath to call in the middle of the night in case this turned out to be just the rumor mail and hyperdrive. It would have to wait until morning. I promised Walter I'd fill him in as soon as I had the facts. The next morning, I called Andreas. 
Before I could do anything more than say hello, Andreas laughed and said, Hey, Joe, have you heard the news? I'm dying. He laughed again. Oh, man, I've been getting calls from everybody in the cast all day. It's been something else. It's lung cancer, he added. Andreas explained that he had been fighting a mystery illness for some time before finally being diagnosed with cancer in February 2005. The cancer had concealed itself behind the bones of his sternum, invisible to x-rays until it had spread to other parts of the body. By the time they realized what they were looking at, the situation had already metastasized into stage 3 cancer. He told no one in the cast about his condition at the time of the diagnosis because the financiers were still trying to get a Babylon 5 movie off the ground, and he didn't want his condition to be an impediment to that process. I quit smoking as soon as I got the diagnosis, Andreas <laughs> continued. <laughs> and I got on a healthy diet. Figures. Now that I'm dying, I've never been, never been better. That was Andreas. That was how he responded to such things. The doctor said I could have one year, maybe two. It's all a question of how things go. Who knows? I might even get better. We'll just have to see. I asked if there was anything I could doing, do, knowing there was very little that anybody could do for him at this point. But you have to try. You have to do whatever you can. I'm looking for some work, he said, to make sure I can keep my insurance while this is going on. I said I'd put the word out and already had him in mind for another project I was trying to put together. That was the only point where his voice started to break a little at the prospect of getting some work. We spoke for a little longer, just private things, before he finally said, Listen, I'm thinking of putting a little dinner together a bit down the road. I'd love it if you could come. We'll just hang out, have some laughs, you know? He then asked if I could do whatever was necessary to make sure his condition stayed private, since publicity would only make finding work that much more difficult. I told him I would be there any day, any time, and we hung up the phone. When I could finally speak again, I called Walter and let him know the situation, then called Doug Netter, who not, had not yet had heard the news. Uh, Douglas Netter is one of the producers. More phone calls ensued, including a conversation with Tracy Scoggins, who had learned the information earlier in the day from Jerry Doyle. Her voice was rough from crying, from one end of the continent to the other, jumping across the Pacific to Mira, who was on set in Hawaii, on the set of Lost, by the way. Secret tears were falling. Everybody loved Andreas. It's that simple and that true. He was funny, smart, and by general consensus, the best trained actor among the cast. He had an infectious laugh that started somewhere deep inside and rumbled across the room. When Andreas laughed, you couldn't help but laugh right back. It's not for me to bad rap or judge his decision to smoke all those years. The facts, are, the facts were what the facts were, and the source of his illness was beyond any question or debate. The only things that needed doing at this point was to try and send Andreas leads for work while he was able to do them, and ensure that his condition remained private. In late June, Andreas called. Without explanation, he said he wanted to send me something and needed to be sure of my address. When I pressed for a hint, he said only, I'm doing something I should have done a long time ago, and it's time to make that right. On July 15th, the mail brought a postcard from Andreas announcing his wedding to Gila Nissan, with whom he'd been involved for some time. I'm sure I butchered that name. The postcard featured a black and white photo of the two of them with Andreas in profile, his hair gone, but still definitely Andreas. It was shortly after this that word began to leak out about Andreas's condition. Some of the other actors, when asked about Andreas at conventions, found it difficult not to say something, out of affection and concern for their friend. I learned some of this from fans who sent emails asking about the rumor. In turn, I enlisted their support to help prevent the news from spreading. Those fans proved relentless in their energy, time, and dedication spent chasing down every blog, every message board, and every news group where the news had started to leak. As fast as one person put the rumor up, they would pull it down again. 
A debt of gratitude is owed to these fans who, in reading this now, know who they are. Andreas wanted his situation to have dignity and privacy, and all of us who knew the situation were determined to give, them that, give him that, since there was not very much else we could give him at this point. In October, Peter called to say that Andreas was putting together the dinner he had mentioned, to be held at his home in Sherman Oaks. Set for the second week in November, it would be a small affair with just Doug, me, Peter, his wife, and of course Andreas. He was hoping he wouldn't have to have this dinner yet, Peter said, but the cancer's gotten very aggressive. He's in a lot of pain, and it's got him cornered. When we met for the last time, Andreas was as big and loud and full of energy and laughter as he ever had been. He seemed determined to put us at ease, to make us feel better about the whole thing, rather than the other way around. So we sat around the living room and then the dinner table, telling stories out of school, reminiscing about good times and silly situations. Andreas asked to hear all the stories we'd never told him before, all the secret stories, because he said, laughing, after all, who the hell am I going to tell? <laughs> <laughs> so we told him. We spoke of studio tribulations and unintentionally hilarious auditions and scandals and absent friends. And it occurred to me as we sat at that table that we were acting out an echo from a future scene of Babylon 5. As the evening drew to a close, we made our way to the door as a group and said our goodbyes, each of us understanding that we were now, in fact, saying goodbye. As he shook my hand, he held my eyes, looking past them into me. We hugged. Peter was next, and they embraced. When things get bad, Andreas said to him quietly, you don't have to come. I want you to understand that. You called, dear friend, and I'm here, Peter said, and I heard his voice catch as he said it. As we looked out into the night, as we walked out into the night, I looked back at the house to where Andreas watched us disappear. He waved and smiled, and there was no sadness in his eyes, no fear, only the firm light of determination and a pride that was so terribly, brilliantly fierce. February 2006. Joe, it's Peter. Give me a call as soon as you can. And with that, Andreas was gone. I could spend the next several pages talking about how Andreas lived, the joy and professionalism he brought to his work, the funny incidents... The way he felt, the way he felt, svelte and sleek, when he was dressed as Jakar. But those tales are best saved for the stories about individual episodes where they can be told, and his life can be celebrated at greater length. I chose to tell this part of the story for one single single reason, because sometimes the way a man leaves this life speaks profoundly more than anything about how he lived his life. In his passing, Andreas stood revealed in all of his colors. Proud, unflagging, laughing, and impossibly brave. Right to the end. That is the most important story of all, the story of his life, lived full throttle. The other stories we will tell as we get to them. With one small exception. It was March 15th, one month and two days after Andreas had departed this world. Warner Brothers was hosting a big shindig uh, at the Museum of Television and Radio in Beverly Hills. A deal that would put Babylon 5 and dozens of other WB series online at AOL. I hate parties and generally decline when invited, but it would have been impolitic for me to decline this particular one, so with much reluctance, I went. The place was going to be lousy with studio executives, publicists, press, photographers, and stars from the 1980s. <laughs> Inventions, invitations had also been extended to Doug and members of the B5 cast still living in California, which at this point meant Tracy Scoggins and Jeff Conaway. As I crossed Santa Monica Boulevard to the entrance that was aglow with camera TV lights, I found myself wishing that Andreas was still here. He hated such gatherings as much as I did. But watching Andreas not have a good time was a thousand times more entertaining than watching someone who actually enjoyed these things. 
The man grumped magnificently. <laughs> as I came around the museum, I glanced through the large windows to where exhibits from other shows had been set up, such as Lois and Clark and oh. Kung Fu, <laughs> oh. among others. But as I stepped into the museum, it was not the sight of any of these that stopped me with the force of a hammer to the chest. Just inside, and to the left of the entrance, so that it was the very first thing when you walked in, was Jakar. His uniform, boots, gloves, everything that made Jakar the character, except for the makeup and, of course, Andreas himself, had been placed on a mannequin whose form ended at the shoulders, so that the costume seemed to stand alone and empty. I didn't know what to make of it or what to say as Doug and later Tracy came in. None of us could figure out how to take it. It was a moving tribute, but it was surreal and wrong. At the same time, it couldn't have been more right. It was him, but he just wasn't there. The empty uniform brought home with force the truth that no one else could ever wear that uniform. It was empty this night and would remain empty forever because no one else can or will ever play that role. The metaphor was unshakable, and as the night drew to a close, I slipped away from the rest and made my way back to the costume to Jakar to say hello and goodbye. When I arrived, I found that a line of beautiful young women and starlets had formed a line beside the figure of Jakar. They may or may not have known who or what that costume represented, or who had worn it, but they found themselves drawn to him. They posed beside the figure of Jakar, snuggled against him, couldn't keep their hands off the costume, <laughs> because, as one of them noted, there was just something sexy about it. <laughs> and from somewhere beyond the rim, I could hear the sound of Andreas laughing. That's well, he did have a penchant for uh, earth women. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's only fitting, I suppose. I thought that was a, a, a good Wanted to know what their pleasure threshold was and whatnot. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> okay, uh, so messages from Earth. Yeah. Um, why aren't there live chickens on the station? Man, they're such a filthy animal. Chicken manure is used <laughs> for fertilizer. <laughs> they don't need fertilizer. They have hydroponics. They've got trees planted in there, oh, man. Yeah, that's true, they do. You know, you'd have to have guards sitting there keeping the pockmar off of them. <laughs> I just think that chickens are fairly innocuous to take care of. That certainly would be easy to bring the feed to them, and then they've got a source of of meat and eggs. And why they can't bring wait, wait. eggs aren't meat. <laughs> Egg is uh, liquid chicken. <laughs> it's pre-meat. <laughs> like that. <laughs> um, and I, I don't see why they can't manage to bring bacon out to uh, Babylon 5. Yeah. It just it seems odd. With all of the possible worlds that they have, you know, potentially inhabited, one of them can't be a farm world specifically responsible for producing food for military installations. I see your point. This seems short-sighted. <laughs> All right, so the President Clark hearings continue, and uh, a shadow ship is mentioned. They even show it, you know, they're on the news, and they're like, oh, you know, this is a f you know, this is officially kind of coming out, and, you know, EarthGov is saying, there may be some secret race out there there's that a we... There's here. Yeah, we, we don't know, which is interesting because... the. Shadows clearly seem to be in, entrenched in there, and they're just using it as yeah. It was that fear monger. It was that conversation that we heard yeah when, from Indawi when well, after Indawi left the room earlier. Yeah. Um, Jakar is in prison and yeah. seems to be very happy in there, 
and he is writing out his history or the history of the, those people. You wanted the bell rung? I didn't. Uh, I didn't say baccalaureate. I. <laughs> oh, Jakar's book. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, Jakar's singing. <laughs> Uh, well, petitions we, for or against? <laughs> we don't actually hear the singing, thankfully. Um, Listen to Joey sometime. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly enough, I got a uh, a, uh, a voicemail back when I still actually had my uh, answering machine hooked up. That was uh, it was a pocket ring. It was either it was either on my uh, my old answering machine or it was at work. I can't remember which. Had to be your answering machine. I've never had your work programmed into my cell phone. You've called my me? work before. I don't have it as... I've never had it as a default number. I have to dial it. I think you have, though. I, I have a memory of you programming that in. At any rate, you called me, left a message, but you didn't actually call me. It was a, you know, a pocket dial, and I could hear you singing... As you were driving down the road. It's the only time I sing because everyone hates my singing so bad. And then there was another time when you called or the phone rang. I picked up and it's Joey doing that again. And I was shouting, Joey, Joey, and nothing. You didn't hear a word and you just kept right on singing. So It's pretty bad, huh? I've heard it and uh, it wasn't anything special. Continue your work as a programmer. Um, I, I could do like one of those, you know, see how bad I am kind of careers. <laughs> no, don't do that. <laughs> um, so the, we get to the main plot, which is that there is a shadow vessel hidden um, on a planet. Uh, was it Io? One, I, no, it was... One of the other moons. Yeah. Of, uh, of Jupiter. Yeah, I can't remember... But we're introduced to this woman who I, I can't even remember her name. Doctor, she K. gets <laughs> she gets uh, um, rather melodramatic about the entire experience, but uh, whatever. And she tells a story about how they found a shadow ship, which they didn't know it was a shadow ship at the time, but they found a shadow ship on Mars um, years ago. Yeah, and they all hushed it up, and the and Psychor was involved in this. And so it was, you know, clearly bad news uh, as, as because that means that the shadow have been amongst our um, particular solar system. And that doesn't bode well for us. I thought us. it was interesting that Garibaldi's been carrying around that half-burned Psychor symbol yeah. in his pocket. And he's never mentioned anything yeah. about it? Yeah. I, I that was a little sketchy for me too, but I I looked past it and was, you know, willing to move on. So Sheridan plans a suicide mission, essentially. Yeah. I think he and Delenn both come to the understanding of, look, we've got to take care of this, and there's a really One good way chance or another, we have to stop it. We're we're gonna die, and we're we're comfortable with that. And I thought that that was that was a nice scene, to to have them, yeah, you know, talk about. Okay, now the Night Watch is extending once again their power, their power into what they're gonna do. Yeah, and uh, that guy, I we've never seen him before. He's clearly a security officer aboard Babylon Five, but it's uh, apparently he's been endowed with a, a you know 
greater power from the Night Watch people. Yeah, he's higher than Zack is in the rank of the Night Watch, not necessarily as a security guard. And I find it so interesting because at, at some point it's got to come to a head where they have to say, okay, you obey an order because you are a military officer or, or yep. you're obeying Night what Watch. Night Watch. Yeah. Now, I can't remember if that actually happens or not. But we'll have to find out. We'll just all have to wait and see. Yes, we're not sure. <laughs> <laughs> the bell might have tipped them off, Joey. <laughs> um, is, it, is that still foreshadowing? Or is that like the spoiler bell at that point? <laughs> anyway, I, I think that that, I mean, it's going to come to a head at some point and it's not going to be pretty. Yeah. Um, Mimbari beds are awkward. Okay, I was actually—I knew that was going to come up. I'm looking for the uh, where he discusses that in the book. Here. You can keep looking. I'll set it up here. So Sheridan—they're flying in the White Star to—it's um, a two-day journey to Earth, and Sheridan is sitting in the captain's chair and falling asleep. They've been traveling now for 20 hours. Yep. I don't know why he felt the need he had to stay in that chair the whole time. Have you seen the beds? <laughs> <laughs> well, he I'd rather fall asleep in the chair, too. He should have been going about the ship learning how it works and functions so that uh, he can fix it when the he time comes. He watched Star Trek as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway. Did anybody notice, by the way, the redesign of the interior of the White Star? No. Okay. They completely redid the interior of the White Star. Including the battle pods that slide together when they go into battle. I rolled my eyes pretty <laughs> hard about that. It's like, oh, now we're at attention. We're flying through, you know, hurtling through space with this, you know, huge lump of technology. Sosinski talked about how he tried and tried and tried to convince uh, the director that was the wrong thing to do, but the director was convinced, and finally, Sosinski said, "All right, just go do it." Now that's when the producer comes down and says, "Okay, shoot it your way." Okay, good. You feel good about that? Now shoot it my way, and this is what we're going to yeah. put up. Unless he's, you know, some director that he really needed to, you know. Well, it was Mike line. Vihar who not only directed most of the really good episodes of Babylon Five, but went on with him into both Crusade and Jeremiah. So clearly, it was somebody that he wanted to keep a good relationship with, and he didn't feel like that issue was strong enough to. That uh, was a pretty dorky move. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Okay, so Sheridan goes in to, to take a nap or to go to sleep, and he goes in and you know decides to choose a bed. And the only bed of, that he choose, you know, he's got several to choose from, but he goes right next to Delenn. Sure, wouldn't you? Not necessarily. If I see someone else sleeping, I would choose a bed further away so as to someone not disrupt them. Delenn. Yeah, she's not that attractive. Okay. Did you find your comment that you were looking for yes, now? Yes, I did. Go on. found it when you said to go and continue looking for it while you set it up. Well, a, a signal of some <laughs> sort, perhaps even ringing the bell, might have got my attention. <laughs> Aaron's right. That bell's lost all meaning at this point. <laughs> at the risk of dragging Shakespeare into this, the Minbari beds seen here and elsewhere in the series have their roots in Shakespearean history. In 1986, I made the journey to Stratford-upon-Avon to see the environment that had produced one of the world's greatest writers. One of the houses was set up on the inside to look just like it did in Shakespeare's time. And I was struck by the beds. They were very short, for one thing, but more importantly, they were set up at an angle. 
pillows piled high so that when you slept your head was higher than your feet. This was apparently done because at that time it was considered bad luck to sleep in a completely flat position. It was tempting death since the dead were generally the ones laid out flat for burial. As noted in prior volumes, the most alien practices are often the most human, so I filed this away in case I should ever need a really cool looking alien bed, which is how it wound up in Babylon 5 backed by exactly the same rationale. Uh, I wasn't fond of it. Ironically, over the last 10 years or so, I developed chronic acid reflux. To combat this, my bed has been designed at an angle <laughs> so that my head rests higher than the rest of me. Translation, every night I go to sleep in one of those Midbari beds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, anyway, th there's a nice scene there uh, where... He tells a story about his childhood stuff. Yeah, between Delenn yeah. and uh, Sheridan, they share and have a very nice moment. My wife thought it was really odd that the White Star has white noise sound effects. She's like, why would a ship like that have the sound of rain programmed into it? And I said, I can believe that they just have a, a, series, a library of sound effects as part of their standard... OS install for spaceships. You know, I hadn't thought of it till you, your <laughs> wife, just pointed out, and that's pretty reasonable. I, I, I kind of agree with her on okay. that. Right. I, when I listened to, to the episode, I was so over the story that Sheridan was telling me that by the time the rain came, I was like, eh, wh okay, whatever, fine. But I think you're. I think Dee Dee brings out an excellent point. Hey, sci-fi. This may be connecting with a microphone somewhere that's actually hearing rain hitting a rooftop. <laughs> or at least at one point it did. Um, okay. The shadow vessel awakes. Because somebody tries to go in it and apparently are not properly prepared for it. Yeah. And uh, it starts shooting everything down there. Now, is this base where it's at is it a military structure or a psychor structure? Neither. It's interplanetary expeditions. Okay, and that they apparently appear to be controlled by EarthGov. EarthGov, yep. Okay, which would make sense or why a quasi -govern governmental organization, kind of like the EPA. So, uh, which basically makes it, you know, explains why the White Star gets the blame, and they don't mention the Shadow Vessel at no. all. Right. Which yep. was frustrating. <laughs> Um. Anyway, the uh, they start to battle the the shadow vessel, and the White Star, who's supposed to be this really really tough ship, only manages to do, do minimal damage. Minimal damage, which yeah. does not bode well for the war that we know is coming. But it's still only like a mid class or mid size vessel, right? Whereas the shadow vessel is a capital uh, ship. Yeah, I I'm not aware of the. Uh, ship structure of the shadows. I don't know if they have. We haven't really been explained to us all of the different. This is their options. capital ship. Is that like a galaxy class? Yes. Ship. Yes. Okay. Whereas the White Star is more like a Constitution class. <laughs> anyway, it's not doing much damage, and it made me nervous. Yeah. But it it got it did what Sheridan want, which was. It followed it. it pissed them off. And so Sheridan beelines for Jupiter, flies down into the atmosphere, and uh, he is trying to get it to 
essentially explode in there. He turns, turns the ship around, flies out, and then he says to Lanier, Give me everything that you've got. <laughs> and Lanier's great line is, If I were holding anything back, I would tell you. And it's clear that he's a little annoyed with well, the captain. Well, yeah, Star Trek, you always hear, you know, give me more power. It's like, oh, well, suddenly we're running at 120%. And <laughs> I think more of the effect, I, I get the sense that Lanier feels some kind of ownership of a white of the White Star. Oh, there. okay. And this is the second time that they've gone out to battle a shadow vessel with Sheridan not telling anyone what his great plan was for defeating it and putting Lanier's beautiful, loving little ship at risk. You know, it does seem weird that he wouldn't bother to explain to people what he's going to do. I mean, for the sake of the show, (laughs) you shouldn't do that. But, I mean, you should tell your people, okay, this is the plan. This is our plan. This is how we're going to execute this maneuver. Hey, before we get out there... What do we know about the pressure tolerance of this hull? <laughs> Instead of, as we're going into Jupiter's atmosphere, let me ask that question. <laughs> yeah. Again, instead of sleeping in the captain's chair, that's what he should have been doing yeah, the okay. entire time. Uh, anyway, the Agamemnon shows up. And it starts attacking the White Star. Agamemnon, of course, being the ship that uh, previously Captain Sheridan was in control of. So they decide, hey, you know what? This worked last time. Let's try opening up another jump gate. Yeah. So they do it. Inside of a planet's um, atmosphere. atmosphere. And that really charges up the particles a lot. And they're able to escape. I can't remember. Did it do any damage to the Agamemnon? Not that we know of. Okay. But it made it look like the ship blew up. The mm. Agamemnon believes that the White Star is expl- has exploded. Oh, I thought that that was just sort of like uh, the the politics of the moment, just saying, "Oh yeah, we uh, this other this alien ship showed up, but the Agamemnon destroyed it." If that were the case, we would see over the rest of the, of the series Earth trying to find out where this White Star came from. We never get that, mm. so I think that that's evidence to us to say Earth actually believes that the only ship of this kind has gone. Okay. Okay. Um, we did find out in this episode, one thing you didn't mention, is that shadow vessels use a living person as their CPU. Right. To run the, run all the, the ship's computer. Which kind of makes me think that ha- that planet computer uses a living person to run it. Is there any connection here? <laughs> Maybe. 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 No. <laughs> oh well. But we're just we're always left to wonder what happened. What who created Epsilon three and why? It's Maybe just two different races coming to a a, conclu- a similar conclusion, saying, "Hey, you know, if you put a person in that, it works a lot better." <laughs> <laughs> um. All right. So Zach and the Night Watch kind of come to a head. Yeah. A little bit. I, I don't remember that scene super well. So could maybe you sum that up? I the. The guy who's the head of the Night Watch is basically trying to convince Zack, look, you need to come out about what you know. I know you've seen some of the things that are going on. You're pretty close to the chief. It's time for you to decide where your loyalties lie. The chief trusts you. Get in with him. Go to him casually and just say, hey, can you include me in what's going on? And Zack basically says, no, I'm going to side with Garibaldi. Uh, he says, you know, uh, he, he points out, which I think is a perfectly fair Reasonable. point, mm-hmm. is to say, 
clearly he doesn't trust me or he would have involved me in this weeks ago. Which I think we're, you know, we're, we're supposed to get the sense that Garibaldi is still kind of holding, holding his cards close to his chest, maybe holding on to some frustration and, and betrayal from, you know, his number two that betrayed him earlier. But uh, the, the, the essence of the scene is we get the impression that Zack puts his chips in with Garibaldi, even though Garibaldi has given him no reason to do so whatsoever. Well, I think that Zack has kind of been a jerk through this whole process anyway. I just don't think that he's... Leadership uh, material? Yeah, <laughs> I, I just... He seems kind of lazy about everything, the way he goes about everything. Really? Yeah. Huh. Okay. I get a general sense of him, he's sort of like, ah, just go with the flow. Yeah, okay, sure. I, I, I kind of yeah. got like the... Uh, this is almost like Londo... If Londo had said, "Whoa, whoa, hey, the price is too high. I'm, I'm skipping out because the f- thing, the the reason Zach joins us is extra money. Mm-hmm. All I got to do is, you know, look around for threats. Yeah, that that's why I'm. That's why and, and I'm now saying he, and, that he's not but, worth anything. But now he's seen, you know, wow, you guys are actually, you, you want me to do stuff that is against my conscience. Uh, yeah, I, I, I want no p- further part of this. The um... Hmm. It kind of makes me think a little bit about what type of person do you want to be? For me, I see Zach, whether it's right or wrong, I still see Zach as this guy who's just kind of floating around from place to place and it's, hey, no big deal. Hey, all right. Sure. Okay. And I see Garibaldi as the type who's inserting himself into a lot of stuff trying to get information, trying to be involved. You know, whether it's right or wrong, that's the type of person that he's trying to be. What do you think? I mean, as a person, what's that type of personality? Are you a Garibaldi or are you kind of a Zach kind of guy? And I think that, I'm going to speak for myself here, You, you can think about your own answers here, but I think that I tend to kind of be a Garibaldi when I'm at work. I'm very much trying to find out, hey, what's going on? Oh, I heard a part of this conversation here. This sounds weird. Tell me what's going on about this here. I need to understand and be a part of it. Oh, I'm glad I did. Here's the, I mean, it happened at work today. You know, someone was going off about, oh, they just don't understand what I need to have happen. I said, explain it to me. So they explained it. and I'm like, okay, here's what you need to do. And I solved, I I prevented probably about two to three hours worth of waste that would have happened in a five-minute conversation. In my personal life, I'm kind of like Zach. Zach. (laughs) I'm just sort of like, hey, yeah, okay, just let the world go on and just do its own little thing there. See, I have trouble seeing Zach like that because he's become Garibaldi's number two. He's no slouch. He's got to be doing something. To, I, to... I get that he is supposed to be that, but every scene that I've ever seen him in, it's nothing of a forceful nature. It's nothing him. He's not, you know, bullying somebody or knocking somebody's head in or you know, dragging him into prison or anything like that. So that's why I'm coming away with that impression of of who Zach is, especially because of his joining the Night Watch, which is. Oh, sure, yeah. If they want to give me 50 extra credits a week, okay, fine. Yeah, I'll do it. Who am I to turn that down? 
<laughs> like your accent. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> I was trying to go for a Zach, and then it ended up being an odd Italian well, I was going to say, it's kind of a Joe Pesci kind yeah. of thing going there. <laughs> My apologies to any Italian-Americans out there I may have just offended. Sounds more New, New York-y. Yeah, <laughs> well, there's plenty of Italians out there. I suppose. So, Joey, I, I realize I just kind of threw this at you. Anything that kind of comes to mind? Well... Well, I don't think you're... I don't agree with your interpretation of Zach. Okay. Um, I think the question is still valid and bears some thought. Excellent. I feel validated. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd like to answer it if I can by referring back to the episode. Okay. I was really hoping that you would turn to the J. Michael Straczynski books. Well, lucky for you, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> this has become like your new Bible. Honestly. You know, you're out there... You know... In life, and someone throws you this tough challenge, and you say, "Hmm, you know, the Bible teaches us something about this." <laughs> and and now you Bible. pull out your new Bible. Ah, yes, J. Michael Straczynski teaches us something about this. Let me let me read from the words of Babylon Five. I just think that it's you know I have this handy reference here. Why try to come up with my own answers when I can use someone else's words? Crutch, crutch. <laughs> Garibaldi goes to see Jakar while he's in prison. And Garibaldi asks him, you know what's odd? You seem happier in here than you were out there. Jakar's response is, in here, Mr. Garibaldi, you cannot hide from yourself. Everything out there has only one purpose, to distract us from ourselves, from what is truly important. But there is no distractions in here. You can learn much from silence. And I, you know, I watched this episode and I paused it right then and I looked at my wife and I said, I answered a question she's been asking me for a little over three years, I think it is now. Why are you doing this podcast? <laughs> and I said, there's my answer. There's my answer to this question. Let, let me go, you know, I, I asked you, Pete, if we had ever linked this to our listeners. I don't think we have, and I, I will send you a link to it so we can send this out to our listeners. Um, we find our music through a online PR firm that represents artists who want to be involved in in digital media and want and want podcasters to use their music. Um, all of them except for I Fight Dragons. I found I Fight Dragons on my own. <laughs> what about Shana Zaid as well? That Shana was, Zaid came through the cyber PR agency. I thought it was a, a listener who got us her. Oh, maybe it was. I think it was. Okay. Someone was like, hey, I listened to this guy's podcast and then she was like, Oh, hey, yeah, tell them they can use some of my music. Oh, yeah, you're right. That was Shane's aid. Okay. By yeah. the way, I, that's how I think Shane's aid uh, <laughs> speaks. Anyway, uh, a few years back, or a year, let's see, no, 2000 and, yeah. oh, 2010, a year ago. A little over a year ago. We were their featured podcast into their news, on their newsletter and on their website. And they had sent us a... Series of interview questions. Yep, I remember that they asked us to answer. Because uh, you asked me to answer them, and then you uh, you weren't satisfied with my that is answers. That's a load of crap. I, I decided told you we to were both going to give our in. answers. No, no, I was not told you were going to do anything of the sort. <laughs> we each wrote an answer. I can't to believe you've even brought this up again. This is a sore subject. <laughs> open wounds. Open wounds. Let me pour some salt in. Because I'm going to read my answers and not yours. <laughs> <laughs> They, they asked us to say, tell us a little bit about your podcast and why you started it. My response was, television has been called the opiate of the masses. 
While there certainly are those who will always view it that way, we struggle to tear people away from their mental sofa and show them that seeking entertainment need not be an abdication of personal values. Later on when they asked us uh, in the same interview, what do you ultimately hope to accomplish? I said, my primary goal is to shake people loose from the malaise that seems to grip them. The world is falling apart around us. And mostly because people can't be roused to an awareness of what is going on. Mm. By teaching people to engage their minds even when seeking their entertainment, perhaps we can help them grow the habit of doing so in every other aspect of their lives. By the way, I did edit myself on the fly there to make myself sound better. (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to accuse you. You couldn't even come up with an original thought. You stole Jakar's answer. (laughs) But, you know, it, it all ties back in my mind to the answer to your question... Are you, are you passively living life or are you actively out there and saying, in every situation, what can I do to be of more value to the human race? What can I do to be more mm-hmm. happy? What can I do to be more successful? What can I do to make my family's situation a little bit better? Anytime you're not doing one of those things, in my opinion, you failed that scenario. You have failed to engage. You failed to basically live. Which is why Aaron... <laughs> oh, don't attack the intern! <laughs> no, I was about to say, which is why he hates me so much. But go on. Why I get so frustrated with him. Because Aaron's the opposite. Aaron, Aaron's answer to any question I ask him is... Meh. Meh. <laughs> Not even a true word, I don't think. <laughs> I, I... Well, I know, tried adding some, some emotion to it once. I meh! But he just didn't. <laughs> You're a sheep? <laughs> I, I don't believe that there is any time in your life when you should be a passenger. If you really want to be successful in life, you have to be out there saying, what can I do? How can I make this better? How can I be involved? It's why, you know, it's why I'm in the parliamentary procedure thing. It's why I ran for office you know, several months ago. I believe that at any situation where if you're unsat- unsatisfied with the way the world is... It is incumbent on you to do something about it. That's hmm. why I wanted, when you introduced the idea of starting this podcast, I thought, man, I want to be a part of that because maybe it's only 40 people, but maybe out of those 40 people, we can get to them and we can help them say, look, here's how to be involved. Here's how to engage. Here's how to make something. Hmm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, uh, it, it really does. Uh, you've really uh, you're, built you're yourself into something spectacular here. <laughs> oh, I, I got to get my votes for Congress, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I think the Senate seat's going to be coming open soon. I think uh, you could go for Senate. No, I, I want to run in Congress first, get a little bit, you know, experience underneath me before I go for that Senate seat. <laughs> because the real work is done in the Senate. <laughs> yeah, you know, nobody wow. takes congressmen seriously. <laughs> congressman. <laughs> I am so going to play this back. <laughs> well, if I were in Congress, it would be different. I Mr. just want that to be clear. Mr. Smith, uh, uh, an independent source uh, mentioned... <laughs> Your personal feelings about the the House of Representatives. Um, Yeah, it it just, it kind of made me start to think a little bit more. Maybe it's a little wake-up call, a little bit to realize, you know, at work, it's, I'm involved in a lot of stuff. And I help make sure that a lot of good things happen Mm -hmm. and that, you know, we're, you know, trying always to be profitable, et cetera, et cetera. 
but I kind of was thinking that I'm a little more in what how I see the character of Zack, which is, eh, you know, kind of, you know, fly by the seat of your pants, just kind of let things go around. I don't think I'm a lazy person. Well, I am in some <laughs> aspects. But overall, I don't think I'm a lazy person. I think I'm well-rounded. I think I am a good person. But I'm starting to wonder if perhaps I'm reaching a little bit of a plateau in some certain areas. And I guess maybe I'm not sure how to break free of those particular things. I'm absolutely certain, absolutely certain that it is related to the fact that I am, you know, still single. Yeah. And it would be vastly different for me if I had a wife who I'm sure would be more than happy to point out all of the things that I should be doing. <laughs> wives never do anything like that. Ask listener Bob. He'll tell you. Wives are the greatest. That <laughs> does. You sometimes leave... listens, Pete. <laughs> you leave that family alone of Bob. You have torn them asunder too much. <laughs> Uh, anyway, I thought that I, I should bring that up and we should discuss that. So I hope everybody else has been shamed into realizing how lazy you all are and how it's time you, <laughs> you stop can't being... can write an email. <laughs> <laughs> stop being the Zacks of the world and start becoming the Garibaldis. Wow, did I just hold Garibaldi up as the, uh, the bastion of all goodness? Yeah. Oh, well. I'm going to remind you of that later on. <laughs> Okay, this episode ends um, horribly, horribly disgusting for me, which is they use this whole incident with the White Star for President Clark to declare martial law. Oh, yeah. I thought you meant the other ending. What the other ending? Marcus and oh, Ivanova. Oh, no, that was dumb. Um, so, Clark declares martial, ar- martial law on... Earth or Earth Alliance, everything. Any place on Earth well, is at. I know it's Earth and Mars. I don't know where it extends beyond that for certain. Mm, okay. Because I don't believe it's on Babylon 5. Because Babylon 5 is a military installation that's pretty much already under martial law kind in of. the strictest definition of the term. Except when there's a mad bomber about. Oh, I mean, especially when there's a mod, mad bomber about. Anyway, uh, yeah, we don't really get... We we do find out that it's both Earth and Mars that are under martial law, at least. And it seems like everything that they're doing right now is just playing into Clark's hands. Yeah. Playing into the Psychor's hands. Playing into the Shadow's hands. And uh, I think uh, it's hurting him. Hurting him. Okay, anything from you? No. Aaron? Science fiction rating, Pete. No, no, listen to the comments. Well, you don't even know how to do this podcast anymore. <laughs> I never did. <laughs> okay. Uh, Moneybag says this. This is a very intense episode. Though not nearly as intense as... Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> now, I find Sheridan's actions believable. He can't let Clark get his hands on Shadow Tech. So he has no choice but to take the White Star to stop him. I'm tempted to say that some of his actions that I've had trouble swallowing to this point, taking joint command of the Rangers, for example, should have come after this episode. But hey, what do I know? I've never written a TV series. TV7, 
uh, Sci-Fi 7. Okay, I, he just mentioned something. Uh, he, they don't want Clark to get their hands on Shadow Tech. Yes. Is the technology that the Shadow use necessarily evil or bad? No, but it would powerful. make them powerful. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's okay. I can, I can buy that. I can. It's like why the White Star is so awesome. Because of Tap Warlock technology. But now, oh, these Earthers now have control of Vorlon technology. Mm. That's not going to work out well. Uh, uh, Brainy Smurf says, How advanced are these people if they can't eat bacon and eggs? <laughs> On another note, I need some clarification. Clark and Psychor uh, are in cahoots with Morden and company, right? Yes. So the box is trying to prevent Clark from stealing a spider ship. Is Clark unaware that Morden's employer is the shadows whom uh, rear the very vessel he is trying to snag from Ganymede? No. We know... Uh, Ganymede, there you go. We know that the shadow and Psychor, at least, know the relationship of these ships because there was a ship that came earlier to get the one from Mars... And there was a, a Psychor symbol left at the site. Mm-hmm. So we at least know that those two are fully aware of what's going on here. Clark also knows. He does? He does. What they're trying to do is... See, the, the Shadow are withholding the technology to get more concessions from Clark and EarthGov and Psychor. If they can go out and steal one of the Shadow's ships without the Shadow knowing about it, then... They don't need the shadow anymore, and they can do everything without them. So Clark is trying to play both ends against the middle here. And it's how the person that they're putting in the ship ends up being improperly prepared, and therefore the ship goes insane. Why did they just use a, uh, a member of Psychor to go in there? All right. Uh, is that the foreshadowing, the baccalaureate, or the um, spoiler bell? Well, I don't know. Did you say the word baccalaureate? I don't remember anymore. <laughs> I say a lot of things in this podcast. I don't keep them all straight. That's the foreshadowing bell. Foreshadowing bell. We need to get one of those children's xylophones. That way it's a different tone. <laughs> That's the best suggestion you've had on if, this if podcast. If you commit to showing up to bang the correct note for the correct kind of thing. You're in. Uh, okay. So, Dr. Blondie reveals that Psychor is attempting to steal a ship from their shadowy allies right under the collective spider noses? Yep. Yes. If so, then Bester's got balls of steel. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Um, are the shadow telepathic? Kind of seems like they might be. I mean, we've seen it. Yes. From, from what we saw with Ivanova... It's clear they're projecting themselves out there. Yeah, they are telepathic. Okay, and it sort of seemed like that ship would be controlled through the, the mind, so... Um, Let's okay. just leave it at that. I have to move you're, on. You're breaking I'm, me. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I can't hold it in, man. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> you not see what's going on over here? <laughs> well, for that, I am truly, truly grateful for making you miserable. All right, back to the email. (laughs) JMS loves to juxtapose suspense and intensity with one-to-one character moments like the rain story scene. 
And finally, although there were only a few lines to choose from in four episodes, the Lanier quote of the week, Temperature is beyond safe limits. Pressure at this depth is causing damage to the outer hull. Was JMS referring to the White Star, White Star, the over arc of the story, or his own exhaustion? <laughs> Sci-Fi 8 TV 7, Drive Fast and Take Chances, LBS. Um, I think that my quote was, was I better. I think so too. I was going to say that same thing. Right. You should have gone with the, if I were holding anything back, I would have told you. Yeah. Oh, well. Well, this was Brainy Smurfs. Okay. It was his sure. idea, so he gets to do this. It is his category. So, so can I ask, how did he become Brainy Smurf instead of Pound? What? Pound? LBS. <laughs> that would be Pounds, I suppose. Um, LBS well, is short for listener Brainy Smurf. Yeah. That's, uh, boy, that's another good nickname. Pounds. <laughs> boy, he's got so many. <laughs> Clearly, we just need more people to write in so we can use some of these nicknames. <laughs> I like Carbonite Man. I, uh, I wish he'd write in. Yeah. Oh, well. Uh, okay. Yeah, well, okay. That's done. Okay. Am I ready? Science fiction rating, Pete. All right. I think that this was pretty good. I'm going to give this a 7 for science fiction. So that's some really good stuff. I'm also going to give it a 7. 7. Okay. For television, um... Uh, some melodramatic stuff there at the beginning with that doctor woman the way that they were bringing her in uh, overplayed yeah. uh, big time um, and while I enjoyed the Delenn and um, uh, Sheridan Sorry. scene it wasn't that super great so I'm only going to give it a 6 um, that doctor actually annoyed me I think a lot more than probably she annoyed you when they show her at a very one profile very early on and I said I think that's Dr. Carter from Stargate SG-1 <laughs> and I had to go look up and see it turned it's out not. it's not but it's she not. looks kind of like her in profile but there, there was just there's one line that uh, it just drives me crazy every time I watch this show I always know this line is coming up because it bugs me so much and I'm just cringing waiting to get past it and then I get past it and I'm like okay because I don't have to hear that conversation for a little while it's in the conversation between Sheridan and Dr. K when Sheridan says, did you ever get a reply from Earth? And she replies, no. Not at first, but a week later. <laughs> Are you kidding me? You might have been Sheridan and said, hold on, let's rewind and have that conversation one more time. <laughs> no, that's Straczynski that needs to be slapped oh, around for writing that. That is just terrible. I, I, and I know people who talk that way. It drives me crazy. Uh, I'm, but I'm with you, Pete. I'm giving this one a six. I'll give it a six. Okay. Uh, P5 rating? 9.06. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of The Homestarmy Presents Trek West 5. We hope that you've learned something, had some laughs, and we always invite your comments to our email at trekwest5 at thehomestarmy.com. Or you can tweet us at hashtag trekwest5, or call and leave us a voicemail at 801 801- 788-4913. So until next time, I am Joey. And I am Peter. And thanks for listening.